VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, as you may have heard, Patty is not here. Good morning, everybody. It's Tim Powers sitting in for Patty for the next uh, four days while he has a well-deserved break. And sorry, Jerry Lynn, I was talking to Dave there. I didn't know the mic was hot. Thankfully, I, uh, I, I did not use my potty mouth, which would have not been a great way to start uh, on, this, uh, on this Thursday, a day when uh, the Prime Minister of Canada is going to join our program in a few minutes. We'll get to the Prime Minister and the issues he's going to talk about shortly. Uh, it's great to be back with you. I was just home in uh, in St. John's uh, a couple of weeks ago, had the uh, normal arduous journey we all have of getting to and fro Newfoundland and Labrador. Glad to see uh, past week some news about new flights and new flight options. That'll make it easier for people to come home and, and get away on vacations. But my, oh my, what a journey it was. I will say one element of it, though. If you haven't done it yet, check out North Atlantic Zipline. My son and I went went out on North Atlantic Zipline, and I got to tell you, it was awesome. We zipped around for, I guess, two hours and a bit, a, a very typical St. John's Avalon Peninsula day. Morning started in a shroud of fog and ended with the, the, the bright lights of sunshine over Petty Harbor. It's almost an Alan Doyle-esque song, given it's his hometown. Great group of people. Um, they said to us, uh, Patrick, my son, and I, when we were there, that uh, it was booming this year. It was doing great. Tourism was returning. So despite all the obstacles of travel, despite the challenges it, it can be to get uh, to the East Coast, uh, they were doing well. I hope that is true of the broader hospitality industry in the province because one of my great concerns is as we are still trying to get our transport system back up to speed, people um, are still also trying to dig out of COVID-19, the economic impact of all of that, and uh, it is uh, is not easy. We're still lagging in those areas. Thus, why you saw yesterday, just to slowly bridge into the cabinet shuffle, uh, the Prime Minister uh, created a new ministerial position the minister uh, created a minister of uh, uh, citizen services, uh, though not fully um, explained yet. Uh, the analysis of it is that this minister will be somebody who will try and deal with issues like passport processing, other immigration matters, issues where there's a direct interface between citizens and their government and trying to speed all that up because that has been a nightmare. Now, just a couple of quick sports notes, and then I promise I will talk about the cabinet shuffle. But I talked about it for five and a half hours yesterday, so I have cabinet shuffle fatigue. And I know we don't want to do all politics on open line this morning, but let's talk sports for a second. How about that World Cup win yesterday? Our women's soccer team 2-1 didn't start so great, was watching the game. Beautiful corner kick um, by one of the Irish uh, midfield, I believe it was. Beautiful kick uh, to take a one nothing lead our team fought back really got their mojo in the second half one two to one they play australia next monday it is so great and we just saw this here in ottawa with rugby to see this nation and other nations standing up and cheering for the top female athletes in the world in different sports long overdue and my oh my our canadian women uh, they've overcome a lot of ordeals there's been challenges at canadian soccer uh, are are inspiring 
serving us this summer. And how great is it to see Christine Sinclair, who at 40 years of age, uh, still playing for the team, came in as an impact sub yesterday, uh, made some plays, uh, and they got the win. So the World Cup journey cont continues. We'll talk about that more perhaps today. We're going to talk to somebody from the local soccer community on all of this. So well done, Canada. Go, go, go. Also want to talk about two uh, people who are recognized by the St. John's Regatta Committee. The former Regatta President Charles Cook and uh, Ed Williams were both, uh, who was in, uh, Charles Cook inducted as a builder, Ed Williams as a rower. Brian's going to cover this more at lunchtime, but the Regatta, of course, next Wednesday, weather permitting, uh, is happening. Uh, such a seminal event, such an important event, and congratulations to Mr. Cook and Mr. Williams. Well done. And in the line of continuing to give out bouquets. Let me give out two more, well, actually seven, the winners of the um, uh, the Order of Newfoundland and Labrador, or people were invested into the Order of Newfoundland and Labrador. The Those who are, will be invested were announced last week. Seven of them. Two of them I know uh, fairly well, Dr. Pat Parfrey and uh, Rick Mercer. Congratulations to all seven. Um, congratulations to Rick. Uh, he's certainly a deserving uh, recipient. He's done so much to promote the province, promote culture, promote dialogue, healthy and fun discourse. Uh, an excellent winner, as they all are. Let me say about Pat Parfrey, uh, many of you know I consider him a mentor, a friend, uh, done so much just uh, in sport alone, but on healthcare transformation, leading that with the Premier right now, and uh, in his early 70s, still uh, a tour de force, and so happy to see Pat get it. He, of course, already has an Order of Canada, as I believe Rick does. So well done, uh, Dr. Melvin. Uh, so many others in that group who truly deserve it. Now, let me do a short setup, and I'm going to take an early break because I want to make sure we have uh, uninterrupted time with the Prime Minister on the Cabinet Shuffle. So you will know we have a question of the day today, and you've heard some of the feedback that was played on the morning show around whether the uh, uh, the shuttle, the cabinet shuffle, I was going to say shuttle, it was a shuttle for seven people, they were taken out of cabinet, but the cabinet shuffle has any impact on you. The online poll, and take it for what it is, is suggesting that's not the case quite comprehensively, but it's only early days. So um, the setup to the shuffle, as you know, the, the government has had some challenges. There were some ministers that weren't performing super well. Um, as our abacus poll showed yesterday, 10-point gap between the, the liberals and the conservatives in the race numbers with the Conservatives having uh, the lead and having that 10-point gap. More concerning, perhaps, for the Prime Minister and his government, in the state of polls in Atlantic Canada, we did a larger sampling and found that uh, the Liberals and Conservatives basically statistically tied, 37 for the Liberals, 36 for the Conservatives. If you're uh, a Liberal uh, anywhere in this country, you know that Fortress Atlantic has always been something you could count on, even in the darkest days of the Liberals, they were still polling quite well and winning seats in Atlantic Canada. They won the most in their worst period of time in 2011 when Michael Ignatieff was leader. So there's, there's some challenges there. Um, we saw yesterday also in that abacus poll that 71% or 72% of Canadians rate the cost of living as a major concern for them. 
my analysis of that would be that, that the government is still having a lot of trouble connecting with Canadians at a very human level, at a pocketbook level. Will this shuffle change that? We'll ask the Prime Minister. We're going to get more specific on what it means regionally with him, but certainly want to hear your thoughts on, on all of this. Do you think change is an inevitable? Can the Liberals save all of this? What's bothering you? What do you want to see? All of those things we will get into when we speak to the Prime minister in a few minutes and of course i don't want this show to be all about politics today probably invariably will wait that way but if you want to call about sinead o'connor which is a tragedy 56 years of age she's gone you want to call and and uh and talk about the uh the other question of the day the downtown pedestrian mall do that call about tourism you call what us about whatever you want and remember you can get me on twitter at powers tim and i'm sure the critics will be out today or or you can get us at openline at vocm.com. Now I'm going to take that early break and hope that when we come back, we will have the prime minister and we can have an uninterrupted conversation. If we don't have him, I'll just keep talking and we'll get ready until we do. For now, uh, I'm Tim Powers, back with you shortly. Welcome back to Open Line. We will have the uh, the Prime Minister with us shortly. Just going to add one thing on the Cabinet Shuffle, which uh, also I think is interesting regionally, and I hope to talk to the Prime Minister about that, and that is the appointment of um, Diane Le Boutillier, the, uh, the MP from the Magdalene Islands, as the new Minister of Fisheries. I think that's surprised some people, though I've seen the FFAW uh, come out and uh, speak positively about Ms. Le Boutillier, and I apologize for the pronunciation of her name. Um, she, of course, comes from a fishing area, as has been noted by the FFAW. There's certainly uh, some species that they fish in the uh, Magdalene Islands that are also fished in our waters. So all, uh, all of that would sound positive on the face level, the surface of all of this, to recognize that she, she understands the fishery at some level. I think um, there was an expectation, and perhaps... <laughs> Perhaps our own members of parliament push back on it a little bit that uh, uh, somebody from Newfoundland and Labrador would take that role. But we'll see if we can get into the prime minister's thinking on all of that. We're also going to try and talk about uh, an issue that has um, been pushed by the Atlantic premiers, and that is the fuel surcharge, which is different from carbon pricing. The four Atlantic premiers have been arguing that uh, the federal government ought to appreciate the regional challenges in Atlantic Canada, that uh, the fuel surcharge will have three times the impact that it will in other parts of the country, and they've been looking for relief. So far, that uh, request for relief has fallen on deaf ears. The government has argued, of course, that... Um, that, uh, look, they're redistributing the revenue from the carbon pricing scheme, but these are different things. With carbon pricing, you're paying at the pump directly. The fuel service charge is not something you are necessarily paying directly and, receive, and you're receiving no reimbursement for it. You may be paying directly, depending how you acquire your fuel, but the carbon pricing scheme is one that focuses on when you go to the pump and you pay uh, you will get some form of rebate check over time and the hope is you will lessen your dependence on gasoline and the like uh, as other options appear so we're going to try and get into all of that the other thing I want to tell you that I found fascinating in the abacus poll that uh, I think will cause concern 
Okay. Well, the Prime Minister is here, so I will stop talking, and I'm sure you're all happy about that. Uh, pleased to welcome the Prime Minister here, and welcome back to Newfoundland and Labrador, sir. How are you? Very well, Tim. Yeah, sorry. Uh, sorry I had you fill, uh, fill some things you were having <laughs> with the line, but uh, I'm glad to be talking with you. Well, uh, good to be talking with you. You got the second tier host this morning, but I'll try and do my best with you, sir. Um, I, I, look, I'm going to try and stay away from the national issues. You and I both talked about that a lot yesterday in different places and spaces. Let's get at, sir, how the cabinet shuffle, as you see it, helps the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, and specifically maybe for somebody who's listening in Gander, where you are today, what would you say to them about what yesterday meant and may mean? Well, first of all, we strengthen the roles for both of our, both of our Newfoundland uh, and, and Labradorian ministers. Uh, you know, Goody takes on uh, ACOA, which means she's going to be able to be supporting uh, small businesses and economic development right across Atlantic Canada, but uh, uh, we know how passionate she is about uh, about Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, and Seamus uh, continues uh, leading on labor and takes on the responsibility, making sure our seniors are having uh, secure and dignified retirements. So I'm um, I'm really happy with that. But in general, this folk this uh, shuffle has been about uh, building up the economic team, making sure uh, that we are totally focused on supporting Canadians through the tough time they're facing right now, whether it's uh, continuing to bring down inflation and delivering direct benefits for people, while at the same time building that strong future, um, investing in housing, making sure that we're restoring the promise of Canada, which is that every generation can work hard and build on the success of the previous generation, which a lot of people are sort of doubting about right now. It was interesting, sir, in our abacus poll, uh, and uh, you may have the Diefenbaker view of polls that they're only good for lining litter boxes, but let, let's <laughs> yeah, assume... But, we'll but you know what? Pundits love talking about them. It gives you something to talk about between elections. So, uh, well, so, uh, yeah, and uh, some of us try and earn a living that way. So <laughs> anyway, sir, um, one of the things that I found interesting in it was, uh, and this is a criticism that's come of, of the shuffle so far, and it is early days to be fair to you, 72% of Canadians in the poll say that the immediate concern for them is the, is cost of living. One of the criticisms you got yesterday and will continue to get, not just from the Conservatives, but from from others was that your government isn't connecting on pocketbook issues and the example that will be cited in this region as you know sir is the climb uh, the uh, the fuel charge not carbon pricing but the fuel charge the four atlantic premiers ken mcdonald your mp all saying we need some relief uh, long preamble to say what can you say to people about how you are responding to their pocketbook issues and is that a fair criticism well, listen, I think let's just look at what, we're, what we've done in the month of July for people. It started with the grocery rebate that hit 11 million people with about $250 plus for, uh, for many, many individuals across the country uh, to help with the high cost of groceries, even if inflation is coming down. Um, we saw the Canada Child Benefit, which has lifted half a million kids out of poverty, uh, increase with the cost of inflation. So that's more money on top of the hundreds of dollars uh, a month families get tax-free uh, and have been since since, uh, 
since 20, uh, 2016. Uh, we moved forward with uh, the climate, uh, climate Action Incentive, which uh, puts $1,300 a year in the pockets of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians in, uh, four quarterly, uh, in uh, quarterly payments that make, make a real difference in people's lives. And then on top of that, uh, the Canada Workers' Benefit is what I'm announcing today uh, that is uh, giving over $1,500 a year to the lowest income uh, single workers and uh, over $2,600 a year to the low, lowest income workers with families. So there's direct support we're giving, even at a time where the Conservatives, and you've heard this from Polyev lots of times, say we're spending too much money, we're giving too much money to Canadians because that's going to feed inflation. Well, we've actually seen inflation come down to, you know, to much lower levels than just about uh, all of our allies around the world. We're down below 3%, uh, but people still need help, so we will continue to be there for them. On the fuel charge, because I think this causes some confusion for people, and just specifically on this for one moment, sir, and the the, the issue is, as you know, um, the parliamentary budget officer says the fuel charge, uh, which is different than carbon pricing, as you well know better than I, uh, is going to have three times the impact in Newfoundland and Labrador than it is, say, in Ontario or Quebec. And the reasons are, you know, we have fewer energy alternatives, we have lack of a competitive market, uh, our geography, our geology, you know the litany. Why does it seem there's a resistance from Minister Guibault and, and, and your government to address this specific regional challenge? Well, first of all, uh, you know, fuel companies are making record profits, prop, profits across the country right now. And we designed this regulation, so there's no reason for those big profitable companies to be passing on the chargers to consumers. Uh, there's, there's no reason. It's a, it's a political choice they're making. It's a business choice they're making. But it's not driven by that. What is being driven by the clean fuel regulations uh, is job-creating fuel projects like the come-by-chance biofuel plant. I mean, these are these are real jobs investing in the future of communities across Newfoundland and Labrador and making a real difference in what we know is happening. Look, you only have to turn on the TV. You see mm-hmm. floods and fires and record hurricanes. I was in Port of Basque last uh, last year. People know the climate is changing. People know we need to take action to prevent that. But what we're doing on top of preventing that is making sure that there are great jobs into the future and growing economies. The Conservative Party of Canada is still denying the fact that climate change exists. They think they can hide their heads in the sand. We know that taking action while supporting Canadians and creating jobs is the path forward for Newfoundland and Labrador. And I'm happy to be here today to talk about that in Gander. Um, one other curiosity, I think, for people in the province, and uh, you've, you're, you've probably heard it already since you've arrived, because I know you pay attention to the local media, is the appointment of Minister Le Batillier as fisheries minister. No one is questioning her competency, but they're interested, given that she's from the Magdalen Islands. I don't think, sir, we've had in any government that I can recall, I mean, uh, a fisheries minister from the Magdalen Islands, the late uh, uh, Jean, um, the, the former parliamentarian who died, uh, who was minister of Trans- Transport from the Magdalen Islands, but can you talk about Minister Le Boutillier and why you made that choice and why you're confident that she will be a good fisheries and oceans minister? 
Well, the work that she's done closely with other Atlantic MPs uh, has been significant over the past years. She's been uh, there on the wharfs talking about challenges, uh, even as Revenue Minister, uh, the Gaspé Peninsula, which she also represents on top of the Magdalen Islands, faces the very, very same sorts of challenges that all Atlantic uh, uh, provinces face around uh, around fishers. Uh, and uh, she's going to be someone who, who gets it, who works, works with people on the ground, who understands the challenges of fishers, but also knows what we have to do to make sure that there are good fish stocks for, uh, for decades to come for future generations. Uh, she gets it, and I just can't wait uh, for people to see uh, what a strong fisheries and oceans minister she's going to be. I know you're busy, sir. Two last questions for you. So back to those dam poles. Um, one of the things, again, I found interesting was uh, we oversampled Atlantic Canada, and we found that uh, your party was ahead of the Conservatives by one point. You know better than anybody else, because you rebuilt the party, that uh, the, the, that rebuilding for you and the, fort and, and, and the success of Liberal governments has always started in Atlantic Canada. You, uh, you, when you were down in 2011 to third-party status, you still had the most seats in the region. Um, what do you say to your own team members and to Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and Atlantic Canadians about why they should still have faith in the Liberal Party of Canada? Well, I think, first of all, we need to understand we're in a really difficult time right now, whether it's uh, global inflation, whether it's the impacts of climate change, whether it's the war in Ukraine that's having an impact on supply chains, whether it's the rise of authoritarian powers uh, disrupting uh, those supply chains and that economic reliability. Um, the world is facing really, really challenging times. And yeah, people are uncertain and, and, and you know, worried about what the future brings. So as people are facing tough times right now, it's it's normal that they say, oh, no, listen, there's there's more to do or the government needs to do more. Sure, fine. And we are. And that's exactly why we've brought in such a strong economic team and have freshened and re-energized our cabinet in very, very real ways. But the fact is, over the next two years, we're going to continue to put money in people's pockets, to grow the economy, to fight climate change, because we know it's only going to get worse. And the idea that it's going to get worse over the coming decades uh, is really scary to people. And I think that as people look at Pierre Polyev, who doesn't actually have any solutions, who's very good at reflecting back the anger and the worries people are legitimately feeling, but not good at allaying them with any real solutions, uh, I know that this amazing team we have across Atlantic Canada and across the country that has a positive, ambitious vision for the country that understands people are hurting now and is putting money in their pockets and supporting them, but also building for that stronger future. I'm excited about the conversations we get to have over the coming years, but I know people are facing you know, really difficult times now, and that's why we're acting to support. Polly have voted against the dental benefit, which has given hundreds of thousands of kids who never had access to it uh, visits to the dentist. They voted against uh, the support for, uh, uh, for uh, um, low-income renters. You know, th He is uh, of a party that believes that cuts is going to help us out at the same time as we're there to invest and support people directly. So I'm looking forward to all these conversations that are going to unfold over the next couple of years.
Well, you probably like this question. It's a break from the budget and, or sorry, the cabinet shuffle. But I have to ask now, did you get a call from a cousin of yours yesterday who said, Prime Minister, why are you doing this cabinet shuffle when the soccer game is on? I mean, <laughs> I, I, for people's purposes, the Prime Minister is related to Christine Sinclair, the captain of the Canadian team. Did you get a chance? Were you looking out of the corner of your eye as, I, uh, as you were shuffling? I, I know that as we were heading, heading in uh, towards that we were down 1-0, uh, and a few minutes later we were up, uh, up and 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 held up. So I was I was keeping an eye on it out of the corner of my eye, and very very happy. It was such a good uh, good outing for Christine and and the whole team. Now I promise not to do a John Baird here or announce this comment afterwards. But you've been a, a great supporter of of sport, in particular female sport. How is it to watch this tournament and and to see what we saw with the rugby a couple of weeks ago? To see so many people standing up and cheering finally for world-class athletes who happen to be female and Canadian. It's it's so good. I mean, the caliber of the game they're putting forward, the world-class players we have, and the impact that they're having is is phenomenal. And we know. I mean, whether it's uh, it's Olympic gold medals or uh, or you know great uh, great plays in other places, um, this brings Canadians together at a time where, quite frankly, like I said, uh, people are challenged, and we need to be uh, there for each other and find reasons to be cheering and celebrate. And the fact that these extraordinary Canadian women are uh, leading the way right now, uh, we're all. Uh, we're all fingers crossed and leaning in uh, for the big game against Australia in a few days. All right. I'll let you go, sir. Thank you for your time. Enjoy your, your trip uh, to the province. Always, always a pleasure, Tim. Talk with you again soon. Take care. Uh, that was the uh, Prime Minister of Canada, the Right Honourable Justin Trudeau. You heard the Prime Minister when we talked about the very specific issues of uh, of interest to the people uh, of the province. We talked about clean fuel. We talked about um, uh, what the cabinet shuffle may mean uh, in terms of direct benefit or impact on uh, the people of, of this province. It doesn't seem, uh, listening to the Prime Minister, there's going to be a ton of movement on the request from the Atlantic Premiers on the clean fuel regulations. The government seems to be indicating that uh, that's something the private sector needs to sort out. Not sure that is going to be what happens, but we uh, we, sa- we we shall see. Uh, equally, uh, you heard the Prime Minister make um, some criticism comments of Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives. Those battle lines are, are becoming more evident and clear by the day. I think we're going to have a couple of Conservative MPs uh, respond later. But I want to know what you thought about that conversation. What, what did you hear from the Prime Minister? What do you think the chances are of the Liberal government uh, winning again? What will it take for you to, to give your support back to the Liberals if it's gone? And I did have to ask about soccer and sport. I'm sorry, but I can't let that stuff go uh, and to be fair to this government and and the previous one, uh, they've done a lot in sport, and it's important to uh, to celebrate. Anyway, we're going to take a break. Now, when we come back, we're going to get some more analysis on the cabinet shuffle. That coming from David Aiken, the uh, Global News Chief Political Correspondent, when we come back here on VO Sam's Open Line. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Well, I got an oldie but a goodie, and I'm not being ageist because he's slightly older than me, but he's always very good, and he's a former Telegram reporter, too. He's he's done so well for himself. He's now the chief political correspondent at Global News. David Aiken, how are you? 
I'm very good, Ted. That was a good interview we had with the Prime Minister. I think he, you, he, he, I think Patty would be proud. I think you asked all the right <laughs> questions. And I was really interested to hear the, the fisheries one because I think, uh, you know, particularly for Newfoundlanders in Atlantic Canada, yeah. um, you know, too many of us in the bubble here in Ottawa, we forget about this region and why those choices are made. And I did take uh, keen interest to see that uh, Dan Lubutillier, I think you pronounced it right, um, got that job. Um, I was trying to think, probably haven't had a fisheries minister from Newfoundland Labrador since Tobin? Uh, no, we had, it wasn't Baker after Toba. It's been a while anyway. (laughs) Ever since Crosby closed the cod fishery and and Brian came in thereafter, uh, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians haven't been rushing to that portfolio, David. You're absolutely right. But but tell me this, uh, it's been a while since, uh, did Stephen Harper have more than just Loyola Hearn? Loyola Hearn. Loyola Hearn. There you go. Loyola Hearn was a uh, fish, fisheries minister for a while. So what, what do you, I mean, just on that for, for a moment, because I think not many Canadians, with great respect to Minister Le Boutillier, other than those in the Magdalene Islands, because she was minister of the Canada Revenue Agency. You might have seen her name on a, a document from CRA, but uh, that's a portfolio that is not very high profile, but important enough in its own right, particularly in COVID as it related to the management of benefits. But what do you know about Diane Le Boutillier or what can you share uh, about her? Is she as anonymous? And again, I don't mean it in an insulting way, just she wasn't on everybody's radar. What do you know, if anything, about her, David? Well, t- to be honest, she is. Uh, she does come from a, a, from a fishing family, uh, but she, is, she, she arrived in Ottawa in 2015, I'm pretty sure, um, pretty much as a, as a French-only speaker. So she's from the Gatineau, mm-hmm. uh, and though she has been taking English lessons, um, you probably want to be chatting with her en français. And my French, as I always say, is I can understand Stephen Harper, but when like Yves-Francois Blanchet gets joking, then I'm lost. So, so it's been very – so in my interactions personally with her have been sort of brief. But again, she's been the National Revenue Minister. She's been, she's been quote, your tax man. Um, uh, so she's a, a, you know, not, not that much of a known quantity. But she has, she's been solidly there right through, um, uh, you know, right through all the Trudeau administrations. And politically, Tim, you know this, that that riding, the Gaspé Z riding, it's going to be rejigged because we've had all these redrawing of the federal electoral map. It's been rejigged. And that is a riding that the Bloc Québécois has just been hungry for for the last three or four campaigns. And so there is a political uh, reason uh, why some of these choices were made by Trudeau. You, you referenced that, that poll, that abacus poll, um, about the, the drop in support in Atlanta, Canada. Um, in many parts of Atlanta, Canada, the liberal support is going to give way to conservatives. But in that part of Atlanta, Canada, the Gaspé Z, the drop in liberal support opens up another seat uh, for the bloc. And I think that's why, I was going to say a minute ago, um, it's been a while. Well, we've had two ministers from Newfoundland and Labrador, which is a bit unusual. Normally, there's just one. And I'm awfully darn sure that uh, Goody Hutchins ended up in cabinet because Trudeau looked at uh, some losses in rural Atlantic Canada. Scott Sims' uh, loss up yep. there in Gander to uh, Clifford Small. He saw Rick, a fisheries minister lost, Bernadette Jordan, in uh, South Shore St. Margaret's to Rick Perkins, the conservative. And I remember talking to Rick after the election, and, and he, he ignored what conservative HQ was talking about, and he just beat the drum on fisheries. So he knew that particularly folks in his riding, that's you know, south of Halifax, 
um, fisheries issues. Uh, the, the belief was that uh, the Trudeau government mishandled them, and he won. Same thing down in New Brunswick, southwestern New Brunswick. There was a liberal uh, uh, there that lost, and again, you know, handling the lobster fishery uh, poorly was what voters concluded. So, you know, fishery politics—you don't just put it to me, man. It, it it costs people their seats if if you don't handle it, if you don't handle it right. Yeah, I want to pick up on uh, two things you talked about there. So let's go to the first one, and that is Atlantic Canada. You've seen those abacus numbers, as you know. We don't always do big samples in Atlantic Canada. Now, 435 is bigger than 100. It's not a thousand, but I think it captures some of the rural-urban tensions and divides, and that may be reflecting in the numbers. I mean, is how important is it? Atlantic Canada to liberal re-election chances, and what do they need to do to lift those numbers? Well, on the big picture, it's a minority government, of course, and so the Liberals lose too many. I mean, they, they really don't have too many seats to lose. And right now, I would say their minority government, or, or up until this poll, um, was strength in Quebec. The Liberals have a lot of seats yeah. in Quebec, and they hold those seats that could probably have a good chance of holding minority. But right now, there be in some polls, I think, did you guys have the block ahead? I can't remember, but it was very close. The Liberals are down yes. to Quebec. And so that is, that, again, is is got to be the first thing that the Trudeau PMO thinks about, is what are we doing in Quebec? And then, you're right, Atlanta, Canada. Atlanta, Canada's got 40 seats, correct me if I'm wrong, 38, something like that. It's, it's, 33, it's 33. 30, 33. Maybe you should have more. Um, but anyhow, uh, it, it, yes, absolutely, Liberals got to hold as much as they can in Atlantic Canada. But, it, I mean, losing three or four or five is going to be a problem. And, you know, the mirror of this, when you say how important is Atlantic Canada to both the Liberals and the Conservatives, you probably noticed Pierre Polyev has been campaigning yep. uh, within uh, at least a couple of times. I think he's brought a tour through uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. I think he's been up in Cliff Smalls riding. I don't know if he's been out of St. John's, but, but he, he has. Been in Pierre Polyev. Yeah, yeah, he's been he's been out there. So that says to me that you know both parties would be polling, and both parties would know that there are seats up for grabs. And you hit on the the the, uh, the fuel surcharge. That obviously is what you know. If you've ever watched Cliff Small in the House of Commons, now that is the drum he beats very effectively um, every time he's he gets on his feet in QP. Yeah, I, I was wrong. It's 32 seats. I'll be a banished from the region. I gave us one. I, we always need more. You know what we're like down here. Uh, the, the, the other point it, it is elaborating further on some of these cabinet choices. And you talked about Goody being a good example of uh, adding to her portfolio, giving her the opportunity uh, to do more and potentially uh, make that a, a political benefit to her seat so she can fight off challenges that she has. Looking at that shuffle, it looked like that's what the prime minister did as well, too. Pick people who perhaps with cabinet elevation would have a better chance of winning not only their own seat, but seats around them. Is that a fair takeaway? Yeah, I, I always sort of, I mean, there, I mean, making a cabinet is a tough job. I don't care if you're Justin Trudeau or Stephen Harper or Johnny McDonald, um, because you want to balance uh, regional interests. 
And in this sense, I think it's worth noting, because I'm an Ontarian by birth, uh, southwestern Ontario, in fact. And southwestern Ontario has a population of about 3 million people. If you know the provinces is Guelph, Kitchener-Waterloo, London, Windsor, Hamilton, 3 million people. And there's one minister, and a relatively junior one at that, a woman named Philomena Tassi. She's yep. the economic development agency for that part of the world. Well, if you add them all up in Atlanta, Canada, you got about 3 million people, and you got six seats at the cabinet table. So there's a reason for that, I think. Uh, and there, there was an addition in the last uh, – duty was the addition in the last um, – last in the right after the 2021 election so i always look at that regional balance what are we saying there and then are there some individuals individual ridings where if we elevate an mp to become a cabinet minister that might help that particular mp uh win the next election i I don't know that the goody you tell me i don't think she was under threat in in western newfoundland it was a little closer than perhaps she would have liked i mean she's i mean that's been a very for a long time a a liberal seat but and, and she's well regarded both by liberals and conservatives i think I think it's fair to say. I think that the, the the seat that I think is the first one that liberals ought to be worried about in your neck of the woods is probably Terrence Rogers' seat. In fact, I thought there was there was talk in political circles during the campaign that Terrence was the one who was going to lose and Scott would survive. Um, I think it had to do with there was a PPC candidate in one riding and not in the other. Uh, there was not one up in uh, in uh, the Gander riding. Anyway, I think that so that's in, in Avalon, as you know, I think uh, Avalon has been you know conservative during the uh, the Harper years. So so that's where I would say that there's going to be some issues. And I'm sure if Seamus is doing any political work um, in order to strengthen liberal fortunes on the island, it's going to be uh, sort of east and the center part of of the province. Th- then looking other was there's there's one other. We have a new we have a new minister of citizen services. Yeah, this is a guy named Terry Beach. Terry's a very I think he's a former tech executive, a young guy, um, and he's, he's he's well regarded within the caucus. But his riding is a riding called Burnaby North Seymour. It's out in Vancouver, and it's the riding where the Trans Mountain pipeline terminates. So this is where if, if, you know, the oil, if that pipeline's controversial, well, it's controversial right there. He's ground zero. And yet as a liberal, he's won, uh, you know, two, two, three times now. Um, And I don't think he was a big fan of the pipeline, but he's done his duty as a good liberal and defended the idea that the the Trudeau government, of course, bought that pipeline and owns it. But to the extent that that is a ground zero riding for any pipeline politics, well, you got a minister now, Terry Beach. And in fact, Terry Beach's riding is right next door to the Natural Resources Minister, Jonathan Wilkinson. Again, same thing. Pipeline and all those tankers flow in, on the shores of their riding. So there's one kind of riding where I see um, somebody, you know, we're trying to reinforce things. And then the, the new Minister of Employment and Social Development. Uh, this is the minister in charge of our social programs, essentially. His name is Randy Boissonneau. He got a big promotion. He was the tourism minister. Not the tourism's not important, but uh, being the employment and social minister. And he's in a riding in downtown Edmonton, Edmonton Center, that is a riding that is going to be hotly contested in the next election. And, you know, every single one counts. And they only got, Liberals only got two seats in Alberta, and they want to hold that one up at Edmonton. Look, before I let you go, I want to get your take on this. Um, I, I think the government 
to be fair to them, did a good job of, as they often do when they're on their money, of showcasing, of, of symbolism, of renewal and rejuvi reju rejuvenation, as they're trying to argue. However, uh, though the Prime Minister, I would say, upped his game a little bit this morning, um, the message is still generally the same. And what we see in the abacus data and what we see elsewhere is that message, as well-meaning as they may want it to be, is not connecting with Canadians. And Polyev's more simple message about pocketbook and fuel charge seems to be getting there. Again, what's your take on the message versus the massage of the of the images? How's that for working some McLuhan in there this morning? I, I like it. I like it a lot, Tim. Um, listen, if they really wanted to change the message and the messenger on the economy, uh, there'd, be, there'd be a new finance minister today. That Christopher Freeland, she still has her job. Uh, she is not the most effective communicator. Um, she may be very competent, everybody says, from any number of other standpoints. But in terms of uh, in terms of connecting with people, she doesn't have that touch, and uh, and so so, I mean that's the, that's the basic messenger for your economic fiscal policy. Now on the affordability side, I'm going to highlight another Atlantic Canadian who's clearly on the rise, and that's Sean Fraser. Yeah, he was our immigration minister. This is uh, um, uh, Picto, Nova Scotia, where he's, where he's from. And, you know, I, I think Sean is a rising star, certainly in the cabinet, and he is going to be out there. He's now the housing minister. So his job, he knows it, is housing is clearly an affordability issue. And so he's he's very effective communicator, good guy. Uh, I think he's the tallest member of cabinet. He's <laughs> six, six, seven or whatever. He's but a tall man. Like about from, from a political standpoint, you know, when you hear a lot of talk about future liberal leaders, it's Christopher Freeland and so on. It's a lot of people in writings where, you know, they're, the, the challenge might be from the left. Christopher Freeland's downtown Toronto. But as Sean Fraser, he, he was giving an interview at a good line. Sean Fraser knows if he loses, it's the conservative that will lead his lunch. Because Sean Fraser, as he said, he said the last three MPs in his writing, this is Central Nova, were named McKay, Mulroney, McKay. So, um, you know, Sean has, Sean has to overcome that kind of tradition, and he's done it pretty well. He's held that riding. So I think as the Liberals think about their political fortunes, they should be thinking about those ridings, and this is mostly north of Toronto, the GTA, where if the Liberal loses, it's not to a new Democrat. It's going to be to a Conservative. And that, you know, you know what I'm thinking? And affordability is, is where it's at, and Sean Fraser is going to be the point man talking about that. All right. Well, I uh, you you work for a private company. This is a private one too. To continue to afford yeah, to broadcast this program, yeah, we got to go sell some ads. Good to talk to you, David. Always a pleasure, my friend. Take care. Thanks, Tim. Cheers. All right, that was David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent for Glo for Global Television. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about Jumpstart. I love that program with uh, Jamie Corab, one of the city councillors. And whatever the hell you want, we've had a lot of politics. We'll probably have more, but call on anything. Back with you shortly here on Open Line. Welcome back. All right, we're going to branch off into some other topics, which is welcome to me for now. But we can talk about whatever. But let's talk about Canadian Tire Jumpstart Playground Program. Well, Jumpstart on the playground in Monday Pond with uh, Jamie Korab from uh, the City Council, Ward 3 Councillor. Jamie, how are you this morning? 
Hey, Tim, thanks for having me on in this beautiful St. John's morning. Well, you, you're telling me that as I'm sitting here today in friggin' Ottawa, and it's pouring rain. I feel like I've been transported into a normal St. John's weather, and you got the Ottawa weather. Listen, um, before we talk about jump start, I mean, you're, you're an Olympian, you're an athlete. Um, what is it for you to see, and I asked the Prime Minister this, to see so many of our Canadian female athletes finally getting the just dessert that they have? Now, in curling, in your sport, that that has happened more often. But now we're seeing it in soccer, in rugby, in hockey, that though the pay equity isn't there yet, uh, the, the, the showcasing of these athletes, the prime time ability of us all to, to take it in. What, what do you think about that, particularly as you're about to talk? about a, a playground facility that could harvest future athletes yeah i mean for me you know with uh, you know someone with two daughters um you know nine and five or five and ten you know I, i'd love to see it um you know like you said in curling they've had the, the pay equity uh, you know for years and one of the biggest reasons why they've had that is that women's curling is just as popular as men so when mm -hmm. you talk about some will talk about the revenue side where men's sports can bring in more because of x y and z but curling has almost been you know that parody for ages but the other sports have caught up and i mean the world women's world cup of soccer i mean that's a massive event you know everywhere i'm going in st john's i see the team canada shirts um the people are watching the game they're talking about the game social media is buzzing so I think it's fantastic that, that, you know, women's sports is where it's to now. And, you know, that's a huge testament to the, uh, you know, the women that were the trailblazers, the one that fought for it, the organizers. So it's, uh, I, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, it, it, it really is funny. Quick story. I didn't realize it yesterday, but a cousin of mine is dating one of the Irish midfielders. So uh, we, we were uh, we were watching her, but cheering for Canada. But you were, we're all all used to managing uh, uh, mixed loyalty sometimes in sports. So to your initiative, uh, Jumpstart, great program. Um, they're investing then in Monday Pond. Tell us what's going on. Yeah, so probably about three years ago, the announcement was made. Mayor Breen was at a conference and got talking to the uh, organizers at Canadian Tire, and they identified, you know, St. John's as an area that'd like to bring this, you know, basically a million-dollar donation inclusive playground. So Monday Pond Park was identified, and it fit well with the new Muse Centre getting built there. That should be done late this year, early next year. We'll park that for a second. But so that was opened last year at the beginning of the year because um, Canadian Tire had a set number they were opening across Canada, and we didn't want to tell them look let's wait till the new muse center is built you know if you're going to donate it let's take a million dollars now and not maybe down the road so it was open but due to you know a lot of large construction going on with that 33 million dollar new muse center as well as monday palm park was completely redesigned so if anyone that was there a couple of years ago it would have been a gravel parking lot you know uh, an older playground now mm -hmm. the whole thing's paved i shouldn't say the whole thing's paved because we didn't pave all the green space but the part that was gravel is now paved you know there's proper parking stalls the softball fields getting lighting uh, so it's totally rejuvenated but because of all the construction and whatnot going on there unfortunately the park last year was closed for most of the year and it was closed at the start of this year which upset and had a lot of unhappy residents which i agree with but there was some serious safety concerns and one of the other problems we had was some of the equipment was damaged over the winter there was a large sail over the middle so there were some wires hanging down. so there was some legitimate safety concerns on site not just around the area so that was fixed by canadian tire had their contractor fix that which we appreciate uh, but now as of noon today so in uh, about two hours the uh, inclusive Monday Pond Park Playground Canadian Heart Jumpstart will be open for the rest of oh, the summer. Oh, that's fantastic. 
Yeah, so we're, we're stoked. You know, I, I posted on the social media groups and, uh, just a little while ago, and the comments are already, you know, people are super happy because where it is an inclusive playground, you know, the uh, Easter mm-hmm. Seals has one, and there's some other ones around the city has some. But this one, that you know, again, a million-dollar donation. The city donated the land, and we did some some site work, which, you know, might have been 100000 150000 I don't have the exact figure, but it's just an amazing for anyone with mobility impairments, uh, cognitive impairments, sensory. It's uh, it's a fantastic playground that uh, hugely successful and encourage people to get out there as of noon today. Okay. Well, uh, if I were there, I would go good work on all of that. Uh, the more spaces for people to play and the more inclusive they are, the, the, the better off we all are. Thanks for the time today, Jamie. My pleasure. Take care. Enjoy your day. All right. That's Jamie Korob, uh, Ward 3 Counselor. Now, Mark Wilson, you're on the line. Uh, we go from safe uh, places to play to neighborhood safety. What's uh, What in particular do you want to talk about related to that, Mark? How's it going, Tim? I'm good, man. How are you? You are missing some. I'm good. Uh, you're missing some incredible weather here. <laughs> are you going to rub it in, too? Oh, you're cruel. <laughs> I was there two weeks ago, and it was well, the day we went uh, zip lighting. As I said earlier, it started with fog, but it ended beautifully. Uh, it was the you know seven eight hours trying to fly out the next day that wasn't as much fun. So I've I've tasted a little bit of it, but thank you for reminding me. Anyway, safety. What's on your mind, Mark? It's a good it's a good time to be uh, to enjoy the summer here in St. John's. Um, uh, so we've, uh, Tim, you, you, you know, I've talked to Patty a number of times about this. I think I've talked to you a little bit about these think issues, so. but yeah, um, I live, uh, down in the Livingstone Longs Hill okay. area of downtown. Um, we've had a number of safety issues and our neighborhood has been advocating strongly for a couple years and I mean the whole over if you take into consideration all of the time that we've been asking for help for this area it's it's well over 10 years um, you know several murders mm-hmm. uh, lots of issues with um, with uh, poverty housing um, addictions mental health so we've been really asking uh, for help um, from the city and primarily from the city and the province. And we've had Sheila O'Leary, who's deputy mayor, and we've had uh, our MHA, Jim Din, uh, very active in the conversations that we've had. Um, and the thing that has, what we've just done as a, as a group, um, just a small group and volunteers at that, it's been, a, we've put a lot of work into a list of asks uh, and, and we're just going to be sending that out shortly to, to, uh, to our politicians, essentially. Um, and I just kind of wanted to let folks know that, you know, that this has, we've, we've advanced it to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so we'll be going after assistance from ministers and, uh, uh at the provincial level and from city council and, uh, and also from our federal MPs and cabinet ministers um some of the so so some of the asks basically yeah what what are what are the like what what would be the three main issues you're seeking to get addressed i mean ultimately what we're seeing is safety issues uh that are uh coming up because people don't have the supports the social determinants of health are very clearly very clearly uh, laid out in in our uh, in in any of the reports and documents that the province has uh, has either paid for or put out, um, 
what we, what it comes down to for us is basically uh, you know applying all of these all of these ideas and applying where we think as you know people who are in, very intimately uh, engaged in this community is to um, develop uh, to have a community center in the neighborhood. Okay. And we know, I'm sure, Tim, you know about, you know, Buckmaster Froud. Yep. Uh, Played soccer there for years at Buckmaster Circle, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, we, need a, we need a community center, essentially, to, to provide these kind of services. Right now we have a harm reduction van from Eastern Health that comes down once a week for a couple of hours. And it's just simply not enough. Um, we, want a, we want a working group to include all stakeholders from the community and uh, and to work with government to get things done. Um, there has to be a system of oversight and a focus um, on mental health and addiction supports and poverty reduction mm-hmm. um, for vulnerable people in the neighborhood. And we think that our neighborhood is, is kind of different because there's a lot of social housing. You probably know the area. There's a lot of social housing, both city, city St. John's and provincial NL housing units. And there's, you know, people that are renting, people that are homeowners. It's a real mix. Um, so we need these supports in the neighborhood. Um, we've also put in and got about. I got to give you about thirty seconds, Mark, uh, just because we're getting close to news, and uh, don't want to run too late. But I don't want to disrespect okay. the importance yeah. of this topic. So, how about summing it up, my yeah, friend, I mean, in thirty it's a huge seconds? Topic. We're seeing people like you know, people are homeless. They're they're sleeping in parks these days. I'm sure you've had this issue in Ottawa for oh, yeah. years, but but yeah. uh, you know, it's really hitting St. John's. So we need to do something about this. Um, we've even thrown in a request that the city St. John's Act to be updated um too bad i wasn't on before jamie corab um we 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 want to see everybody work together to get this done um one thing i will say is like you know there's obviously we have to invest in sport but the speed at which those investments uh, are are undertaken is really it's really juxtaposed by the speed at which we're getting uh you know affordable housing built in this in this province it's kind of right. disappointing um okay yeah. Anyways, thanks well, for your time, Tim. Yeah, and you're welcome anytime. I think, uh, as you allude to, these are important subjects, and they're so complex. It's not, you know, just more police here or. Yeah, it's uh, complex. Or, I wish we had more time to talk about it. Yeah. Well, I'll, uh, next time I'll, we'll we'll try and carve it out. We got uh, we had to take the prime minister this morning. Uh, you know, he is the prime minister of Canada. So, thank you, Mark. Appreciate the call. Uh, we are going to go to news here now at VOCM. More of your calls when we come back. And Karen, you hang in there. You're next when we come back. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Well, welcome back. Quite the first hour. I've been very busy here this morning. Tim Powers uh, sitting in for for Patty Daly. Good to be with you. Remember, you can get me an open line at VOCM.com or on Twitter at Powers Tim. Now, she's been kind waiting so we're going to go to Karen on line one who wants to talk about uh, one of my favorite subjects and one I live too, a lack of reliability with cable providers and monopolies Karen, the air is yours Hi. let her rip, how are you? Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you uh, Okay, I'll make this brief um, I haven't been uh, with I've been without uh, my phone and my 
internet and my mm-hmm. TV uh, for a few weeks now. And what had happened was that um, um, I was getting a new promotion in a couple of weeks, and um, uh, they came in to install fiber optic cable. So right. when they did that, um, they couldn't get a signal from Toronto. So they told me that it would. <laughs> wow, there's a great up. metaphor. Hey, Karen, you couldn't get a signal from Toronto. I mean, I think I think that's been a well-established Newfoundland theory. Anyway, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, okay. So anyway, he said it'll take a day or two. So there was nothing. So I called, and uh, they said we'll send out another technician tomorrow. So they sent out the technician, and. Uh, they said we can't get into your account. He said, uh, he said uh, it's we have to wait for the people that are on the mainland to uh, more or less get in there, and uh, we can't do anything. So anyway, uh, he left. I got upset, so I called the uh, I called the, the the company I was with. So they said they send out another technician. This is the third one, and I said to them i said uh, could it be with it was somebody i wasn't getting any satisfaction that kind of had a little bit of uh, knowledge of what was going yeah. on because uh, so they said sure so the third technician came and he said uh, he came by my door and he said i tell you right now i'm not going to be able to fix it he said i, I believe he said toronto he said there's a room they have it's called the war room there's 5,000 plus uh, new people that uh, have bought packages and they don't know what to do they don't know how if they're going to have to install them manually or what yes and this something i said well how long would it take it take weeks he said yes it, it, it would so i said okay that's fine um, so i terminated my services there so i went to another company and uh i uh, had a bit of a, a wait say a 10-day wait so uh they were supposed to come in yesterday but apparently they told me that they came outside my house and there's a there's a, a triangle shaped box and apparently, there's no room to run a cable from the outside oh into into my house. And I said, "Well, how long will it take?" Well, we need new equipment. I said, "How long will that take?" I said, "Will take weeks." He said, "Possibly." <laughs> so uh, this is this is what we're dealing with. So, uh, <laughs> oh so it's not good, is it? No, it's and. It, it, <laughs> We can laugh about it, and we are, but it's so frustrating. And uh, though we all hope we have other social outlets and the like, for some people, it's really important to have regular access to the internet, cable—you know, the cable—to be able to watch their shows and do all of that. It's—it's mm-hmm. it's the the thing that drives me batty with this stuff, and it's—it's. It's, I think it's just a common service tactic with big companies. Oh yes, we care, and thank you for your patience, and we'll get it done. Um, well, at the meantime, you um, you probably don't swear, but I do, Karen. I'm littering my <laughs> putting myself on mute so they don't hear it, and expletives are exploding everywhere. It's so so annoying. <laughs> Oh, well, the first pro- service provider, I was good and angry. When I found out yesterday for the second, I just la- I laughed to myself. So what else is new? And so I just putting it out there. Uh, oh, yes, and the first service provider, 
apparently they're selling certain packages and knowing full well that they're going to have problems. But they're selling oh, yeah. them too. They don't care. It's mass volume, right? Because yeah. what you have, you, you, you've identified it right. Like a lot of them, somebody just gets paid for selling. Then the, 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 the problem of looking after it falls to somebody else. So they don't, the person who's selling in some cases doesn't necessarily care if it works or not because his or her job is to hook you. And then, oh, you know, Joe or Jane will look after the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, God. We sound so conspiratorial, Karen. I'm glad, you, glad the radio's working and your phone is working. So you can call in. Thank you. You've made my morning so far. Oh, okay. Take care. All right. You take care. Yeah, Karen's story is, I'm sure we can all relate. Different one now, uh, uh, an important one too. Uh, Trevor's online too, and he wants to talk about uh, an issue with Canadian Armed Forces Insurance. Trevor, how are you? Good, you? How are you doing today, man? I'm doing okay. So uh, you're you're a veteran, I'm assuming, if you have an Armed Forces Service uh, Insurance, or you may not be. Tell us your story. Uh, I retired in December. Okay. So, um, yeah, so what's going on now? This is my first time calling in, so. You take your time, man. You're doing great. If I fumble my words, just, yeah, just bear with me. So <clears throat> members of the Canadian Armed Forces... Before July 1st, we're covered under sunlight for their medical, like, prescriptions and stuff like that for their family members and whatnot. Okay. So, as of July 1st, they switched over to the new group called Canada Life, okay? Yep, I know Canada Life. They're an insurance provider for a company I deal with. Yeah, so, uh, not to get off track here, but... Here and they have two offices here in St. John's, but they only cover the provincial side of the house for the medical insurance. So when I went in there, they more or less gave me a number to call, and you know, same song and dance, just pass the buck. Anyways, so my problem is I completed the positive enrollment for my, myself and my family members. So. I went down to get a prescription from a daughter, which, you know, like most prescriptions, aren't uh, pocket-friendly, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, they're, 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 not, they're too big for a bag, but they're not big enough. And they're, they're, sorry, they're too big for your pocket, and they're not big enough for a bag. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah, you almost want, like, a, a pickup truck to carry them around at the time. But, uh, so, um, yeah. So this prescription used to be covered by sunlight. So I'm going down there all nonchalant on the 1st of July to get my daughter's prescription. And lady hands it to me. She says, that's $189. I was like, whoa, whoa, pump the brakes here. I'm like, how much? She's like, 189 I said, because I was, you know, oblivious to this change all of a sudden from one mm-hmm. uh provider to the other but anyways i'm like uh, well how come she's not you know covered anyway she's like the new company canada life took over have you completed the positive enrollment and i was like no 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 didn't do any of that oh uh, the enrollment such a pain yeah, yeah. yeah that was my bad so all right so i went home i done the positive enrollment put everybody everybody's tickety-boo i go down and for some reason She's still not covered. It comes up on their system saying uh, person dependent is not uh, enrolled. Eligible or something, yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. Anyways, 
so what I'm the problem that I'm having now is the past months I've been paying fifty bucks a week, right, to go down and get my daughter's prescription. I've been calling this Canada Life, mm-hmm. and they say, well, you need to go on the, the website and you need to log in, and you know. So I'm after doing this. I, 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 everything is driven. This is. Can I just interrupt you for a second? Because you make such a good point, Trevor. Like everything is driven to a website or driven to an app. And I, I, look, I, I know at home, uh, and it's not just in Newfoundland and Labrador. Not everybody's comfortable in those are in those mediums or has that technology. Gee, poor even Karen, who we talked a minute ago, mightn't even have it because they haven't hooked up her cable. Like it's so annoying. Oh yeah, it's crazy. Like here we are paying, like I'm paying just as much for a cell phone plan as you are up in Ontario. Yeah, and you can go a kilometer away, you got coverage. I can go a kilometer down the road and no coverage. You know what I mean? So, anyway, it's another story in itself. But so, where where does it stand? I got about a minute, Trevor. Where does it stand? Okay. So where where it stands right now is I called again today just to see if I can talk to a human being, but obviously not. And uh, I'm just trying to get some information on. I, apparently, I got to submit this form, a change to dependence. So, oh, what, what what it seems to be is uh, I kind of you know I got so much time to go. I put the wrong birth date in. So instead of, two, <laughs> instead of 2015, I went 2005, right? So oh, I need my. to see that and just trying to get a hold of somebody to find this, uh, where, where I can get this format. Like, you know, you need a letter from the Pope, more or less. Oh, it's crazy. So, well, good luck with that. I, I think me, you, Tre- me, you, Karen, and others, we can start a WhatsApp. We'll go all, like, online and have a support group. But we we'll probably need to sign out a million forms to get WhatsApp. I'm glad you called. Good luck, Trevor. Good luck. I mean that sincerely. And hopefully, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only member right there that's on the sa- in the same boat, you know what I mean? But, yeah. yeah. Anyways, you have yourself a good day. I uh, love the show. And, uh, yeah, happy training. Uh, all right, thanks, buddy. Take care. Before we go to go to the break, I'm going to do a quick call because someone has found a, Sandra, I think, has found a cell phone in the parking lot at uh, Dominion Kitty Vitty and turned it into Lost and Found. Uh, Sandra, are you there? You got a quick description for us or tell us where you found it in the parking lot or in the store? Yes, it's a Panasonic, uh, <clears throat> black Panasonic uh, cell phone. I found it at around noon on Tuesday in the parking lot of the Dominion store down by Kitty Vitty Lake. And uh, so I've turned it into customer service, and they said they'll hold on to it till you know, hopefully uh, the finder will show up. Okay. The well, owner, good. rather. And you said you found this, uh, we're now Thursday, so you found it Tuesday. Uh, and if anybody's looking for it, all right, it's at Lost and Found. Thank you, Sandra. Good of Bye. you to do that. Appre- appreciate the call. Okay, Tim. Thanks. All right. Some good Samaritan wishes on top of the frustrations of customer service. That was a fun segment. You got stories. We take the calls. I'm Tim Powers. We're going to take a short break here on VOC and back with more of your calls after that. 
I am so envious of Patty that he gets to do this show every day because we go all over the place. We started with the Prime Minister of Canada. Uh, we've talked about challenges we can all relate to around customer service and insurance and lost keys. Now we're going to unidentified anomalous phenomena. So I'm quoting from a CBS News report of last evening. A former military intelligence officer turned whistleblower told uh, House lawmakers that Congress is being kept in the dark about unidentified anomalous phenomena known as UAP or, as my generation would have called them, UFOs, at a hearing that the executive branch agencies have withheld information about the mysterious objects for years. Adam has been watching this, and he wants to tell us what's up. Adam, how are you? Good, Jim. How are you doing? I, I'm okay. Uh, are they up? Are they down? I mean, uh, joking aside, I, I just was scanning all this, and I, you know, I've had other things on my mind. So, what are, what's happening at these hearings, and how have they come about? Uh, well, first of all, I just find it so captivating, um, uh, you know, and I think the biggest thing you might have to take away from this is it doesn't really force you down that rabbit hole of conspiratorial suppositions and yeah. where uh, UFOs are kind of stigmatized and have mm -hmm. always been so it's kind of like a strange conspiracy talk. But it puts so much on a record, so I think it's important to focus on the facts of what was said. Of course, a lot of classified information was not revealed. But uh, what was said and what so much was brought to the record in this first congressional hearing in 50 years, I might add. Is it 50 uh, years? Yeah, I guess, eh, since yeah, it would have been before or just as they were established in Roswell, New Mexico and all of that. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, and so uh, you look at how this is brought about. Brought about uh, upon through the uh, whistleblower process. This was an actual, you know, uh, it was based one, uh, there were three people there testify, uh, giving testimony. One was a naval pilot that was basically coming forward because there's just way too many encounters, he's saying, with UAPs in the sky. And he, it was a safety concern for naval pilots that this needs to be brought to their attention. And, uh, you know, he was very clear and deliberate uh, in talking about how it could be not, you know, we're not going down saying it's extraterrestrial or anything, or non-human origin is what they said, but it could be uh, other, you know, uh, technologies or from uh, other nations. And the, so, you know, all the other things were brought about, so but it seemed that all other things might have been ruled out and that the technology was so advanced, uh, unexplainable maneuvers, uh, and then you go down to the whole idea of a secret military program. Yeah, I just I'm just looking at it as you're as you're talking. I mean, I I think there's a lot of us who grew up with you know the X Files and and trying to as you say is there is a lot of this real? Is it created? And there are, there are a lot of unanswered questions. So as you've watched it, and you're clearly somebody who has an interest in this field. What have you taken away from it? You mentioned UFO stigma. Never heard that phrase before, but that I, I can see what you mean by it. So. What do you say to your, you know, your friends and other Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who are listening today about either why they should pay attention to this or what you have learned from this? I think it's just so important to focus on the facts. I mean, five weeks ago, Canada attended the very first UFO um, briefing at the Pentagon. And, uh, you know, there were five nations. Uh, it was Canada, uh, Australia, New Zealand, the U.K., and the U.S., and it, it just seems that uh, uh, 
if you focus on the facts and how this was brought to a uh, congressional hearing in the U.S. and how so much of this was put on the record, uh, and, you know, you, uh, there was a lot of questions as to um, origins. And one of the things that uh, Mr. Grush, uh, David Grush, the investigator, who basically was brought on by the Pentagon to investigate these, and through his investigations and his findings, he became a whistleblower uh, in terms of and so it's interactions with actual agencies in the government and actual documentation. And now it's very important to prove that there's been no evidence. Uh, actual factual evidence brought forward. The government agency stances in terms of Met Pentagon and NASA still claim there is no convincing evidence for extraterrestrial life associated with unidentified objects. So that's the official stance. But again, this is a whistleblower hearing where so many facts okay. were actually brought through a uh, institutionalized platform. Okay. Well, I'm going to pay a bit more attention to it. Thank you for bringing it to my attention, and uh, and we'll we'll keep looking at it. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate the call. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Uh, as I say, we go in a lot of places, identified and unidentified uh, on this program. Now we're going to go to uh, Debbie. This is one that really interests me. Debbie Sampson on Line 5 wants to talk about um, psychedelic treatment for complex PTSD. Are you there, Debbie? I am here, yes. Give us your. I, I've read bits of of, of analysis uh, on this in the periphery. I've also had many people talk about it who I know who are military veterans and and peers that are working through all of this. Tell me about psychedelic treatment for complex PTSD. Well, first of all, uh, I understand that you were speaking with Prime Minister Trudeau. I yes, was, I was. I was unable to listen to the whole conversation because one of the symptoms of complex PTSD, uh, we, if we have overstimulation, we can't think or talk. So yes. I had to shut him off in order in order to be able to talk to you. But I do have a message for Prime Minister Trudeau, and that is we are falling behind other countries. We Right now, it is my understanding that Australia uh, – Psychedelic treatment is legal in Australia. Uh, it is soon to become legal in the United States. We need it legal in Canada. We need it for our veterans who have, a lot of them have PTSD. I personally have complex PTSD, which mm-hmm. basically uh, is um, from living a lifetime of trauma. And I also okay. have another mental illness called uh, PNES, which is psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, which are a result of my complex PTSD. So I have, I've worked as a counselor for 25 years. I uh, grew up in, in, in an abusive environment, had a lot of different kinds of abuse. One of the things as an abuse survivor is that we become accustomed to being silenced. So mm-hmm. I was silenced before, but now I'm not silenced. I was recently invited to a retreat uh, on the West Coast of Newfoundland to tell my story about abuse, which led to my two mental illnesses. I started to talk about my use of psychedelic treatment for my mental illness. And as soon as I began to talk about my use of psychedelic treatment, I was told that I was promoting illegal activity. So right away, oh yes, (laughs) in a group of people which 
it shocked me because uh, I felt huh. that this was a group of people. Well, they invited me. You for felt you were in a safe space where you I could did. talk. I, I absolutely did, Tim. But I, I was silenced. I was told to stop. And I was ordered to immediately stop talking because I was promoting illegal activity, which I was not. I am, was talking about my your experience, uh, your my journey. experience, yeah. exactly. So I, I just, I regress back to my childhood where I was told, you know, shut up, be silent, Debbie. You don't say things. So I regressed, but I'm out of my regression now, Tim, and I'm, I'm going to speak up. I had to go away to do psychedelic treatment for my mental illnesses. It worked. I continue to heal at home doing psychedelic cannabis. It's working. Uh-huh. I have, um, I'm, I'll, I'll be 65 years old next month. I want to share my experience with everybody who suffers from these illnesses because they can be healed. And as I said a minute ago, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau needs to take action because we have too many people who are suffering. I have layers and layers and layers of trauma that are being peeled peeled away one by one by one, just like an onion. Um, I've been uh, documenting my story. I had a regression of my two mental illnesses back about six weeks ago. I'm sorry I, to hear that. That can, uh, as somebody who's dealt with mental health and wellness, I know that can be very difficult. I'm thinking of you, but thank you for sharing. That helps us understand your journey. And please keep going. Uh, yes. Uh, so I had a regression. Um, you know, I, th- I do believe that everything happens for a reason. Yep. Um, that regression forced me to face more trauma that I have buried for years and years and years, and it's enabled me to. Uh, heal on a deeper level, particularly using the psychedelic cannabis. It's a level of healing. I don't know. I think I just told you. I was a counselor for 25 years. Yes, you did, yeah. And I became disabled because of those mental illnesses. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of experience. I had a lot of healing, a lot of therapy. But the, the level of healing that I'm experiencing now using psychedelics is totally, uh, it's hard to describe it. It's a deeper level of healing. It just helps me peel everything away, away, and away. And I'm documenting my progress. I call it progress Mm -hmm. because I am healing, Tim, and I'm delighted to say that. I'm documenting my progress on Facebook. I have a, uh, I invite listeners to follow Mm -hmm. my healing journey at Debbie A. Sampson, and that's S-A-M-S-O-N, no P, and it's on Facebook. Uh, I'm hoping, Tim, if I live long enough, to put this in a book. I've written one book. I, I published my autobiography two years ago, and I published that because I wanted to help people. I wanted to help people who suffer as I do, and, and they don't speak out. So I have a lot to say. I'm going to keep And you've said it, it and uh, I've, I've got to give you about 30 seconds, not because it's not of interest, but we're, we're way over time, but I <laughs> wanted to have this conversation. And look, I, I would just say a couple of quick comments, then I'll give you the 30 seconds. First of all, um, I, uh, all I know from my journey with mental health and wellness that each of the paths we take to healing is different right and you have to look at the paths that work for you that are yes legal and healthy and but you have to have an open mind about solutions you have to trust regulators to make the right calls and people like you who have taken the path that you have 
absolutely have the right to share their story about what's worked for them. And people who are more knowledgeable than you and I can determine uh, you know, wh where regulation should come in and where it shouldn't. So you've, uh, you, you, you certainly have the space here with me to have that conversation. I'll give you 30 more seconds, Debbie, then I've got to have a break. Uh, Tim, I have so much to say, I can't say it in 30 seconds, but I got to say, you summarized it perfectly, and you will not, this is not the last you've heard of me, I'll put it that way. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for calling today. Thank you for sharing, because as you and I both know, the first success, I think, for anybody dealing with mental health and wellness is to be able to be comfortable, and it takes time, talking about it. So good on you, Debbie, for creating that space for people. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. All right, uh, Debbie Sampson, interesting conversation. Have a look at her Facebook if you want. Want to talk more about that? Please do. Way behind here, but that's all right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Paul Lane is on the other side. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back. All right. Here's some traffic management. And I'm not talking about on the Can Mount Road or Topsail Road. So our traffic management this morning is going to be this. I am going to talk to Paul Lane now. Then we're going to go to another break. And then I will talk to Gord and Charlie after that. So please be patient as we move through the traffic. Sounds like an airline flight. Sorry for any trauma-inducing impacts with that. All right, Paul. I've previewed you. You're there. You want to talk about the lack of vehicles in the Department of Transportation and works. What's on the go with that? Yes, thanks, Tim. Um, I just want to comment on a story. I think it was, I sure it was yesterday or the day before I saw in the media. It was talking about the fact that uh, apparently there are a number of government departments and divisions that have had to suspend uh, particular program services and so on uh, because they don't have any vehicles. And okay. uh, the story basically went on to say that uh, this was an issue with the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure that, uh, um, and, and the, disturb the most disturbing thing, and, and I know people, some people will point to COVID, and quite frankly, I'm getting kind of sick of blaming everything on COVID. But, you, know, COVID <laughs> you and me both, yeah. yeah. Uh, we know COVID did have an impact on, on a lot of things and supply chains, but at the end of the day, according to the story, they didn't even have a proper... Uh, vehicle replacement program in place in the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure, which is very disturbing when you consider the fact that they're responsible uh, for basically all the all of government's fleet. And to think that you wouldn't have basic managerial programs set up to manage uh, such things uh, is is uh, is very disturbing to say the least. And you know we're talking. You know, once so just let me stop you there, so we get this precise. So this was a procurement issue, uh, as in people didn't procure vehicles. It wasn't. You've you've gleaned nothing to suggest that this was a deliberate cost-saving measure. Well, the story doesn't say exactly what okay. it was, but what 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 it does say in the story is that they didn't have a vehicle replacement program so okay. i came from private industry and mm -hmm. uh and we had uh when it came to our fleet of vehicles uh we had preventive maintenance programs we also had a vehicle replacement program so you would look out at what vehicles do we have what types of vehicles what are our needs going to be in the future and that you know would look at like the next five or you know five or or so years out what do we have and then we would have a program to replace them periodically so that 
because your fleet was always up to date. You always had the right, you know, number of vehicles, the proper vehicles, and they were always in good condition. Apparently, uh, according to the story, CBC, that this was in place with the Department of Transportation and Works. And this has caused a lot of problems within other departments. Now they've had to go and rent vehicles at, 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 at a, you know, at a considerable cost to try to fill in the gaps. And, you know, when, this is not an isolated issue because you look at this, and then you look at stories, for example, I'm sure you can recall the issue we had a couple of years ago in the Department of Education with their procurement where, you know, we were spending outrageous sums of money apparently renting wheelbarrows and extension cords and there were tires that were being purchased that were apparently going on private vehicles and everything else that was going on there. And I hear from people all the time in government about wastage of money and so on. So, you know, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, you know, you can't blame this, of course, and, and, and take a broad brush approach and say that everybody in government is incompetent. They don't know what they're doing. That's certainly not the case. There's lots of good people doing good work. But obviously, there are management issues. These are all management issues. Not having proper programs in places in place, not having proper checks and balances in place to make sure that the programs are working and they're being administered properly. And this is all coming at the expense of the taxpayers of Newfoundland and Labrador. You would not see it in private industry. Heads would roll, tickets would be issued. But once again, we continue to see these types of things costing taxpayers, uh, you know, thousands and, and hundreds of thousands, probably millions of dollars uh, in, uh, you know, in wastage and, and, and expenses that are unnecessary because we're not applying proper management principles to what we're doing. And uh, so, you know, this is another issue that's come to light. And I Paul, hope let, let me ask you, is, if I can ask... And they're going to take action. Sorry, didn't mean to try to interrupt you there, but I, no you, you did spawn a bigger question. And you look, you know where I am in Ottawa, you know the story of procurement here, regardless of government, it's particularly the bigger procurements seem to be very problematic. What, looking at your private industry experience, looking at your experience as a legislator, just without any politics to it, why is it so difficult to get procurement right at any level in governments? I wish I had the answer to that, Tim, and, and, and I will say this, that I'm not, you know, I will say this is not, I'm not saying this to be political, uh, to be yep. honest with you, because the same types of things have happened under previous administrations that were, you know, uh, PC administrations as well. Yep. I, it, it, it comes down from, from what I've seen, and, and you can look at this even when it comes to the Muskrat Falls Inquiry and everything else, you've seen the same type of thing. It comes down to a lack of accountability. For some reason, and I, I, I can't put my finger on it, I've raised it in the House Assembly numerous times, when it comes to issues in government, uh, which, which are more often than not managerial-type issues that are, mm -hmm. you know, uh, being propagated from the, the, the head offices and the big wigs and so on, nobody seems to ever be held accountable for their actions. So if there's not going to be any accountability when you screw up or when you waste taxpayers' money, or when you make bad decisions or incompetent decisions, whatever the case might be, and nobody's held accountable, then I guess there's no incentive to do better. Okay. But, you know, we have to get more accountability in government uh, when it comes to these things, because, like I said, this is costing you and me as taxpayers millions of dollars every year, uh, a lot of times because of these types of uh, managerial 
type decisions that are that are not being made or you know or incompetence that's happening and nobody is being held accountable for their actions like i said we've seen it in the, in the, with Nalco with the Muskrat Falls inquiry everybody walked away with their big bonuses uh, and their big payouts and their golden handshakes nobody was held accountable for what happened there and and we've seen it in other uh, other aspects of government where where there are things that leave you shaking your head but we never hear about anybody ever being held accountable for it until that changes we're going to continue to see taxpayers money uh, wasted and uh, of course that affects us all and that money could be put to much better use when we think about the state of our healthcare system and, and all their needs that we have in the community and people struggling with the cost of living. Yeah, well, fair points. Uh, accountability is a big thing, and, and again, it's not just restricted to Newfoundland and Labrador and the examples you're talking about. It's a broad issue. All right, I'll leave it there, Paul. Good to talk to you. Have a good day. Thank you, Tim. All the very best. All right, that was Paul Lane, independent MHA for Mount Pearl Southlands. Going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk uh, to one of the uh, leaders at uh, Blood Services Canada. Back with you shortly here on VOCM. Welcome back to Open Line. Now going to talk to Gord Skiffington. And Gord is the Community Development Manager with Canadian Blood Services Newfoundland. Gord, how are you today? Oh, pretty good, Tim. And yourself? I am okay, thank you, but we want to try and help you today. Now, I gather um, you guys are renewing a call for blood donations in the province. Supply is low. Uh, you need nearly uh, two, or you need precisely 266 appointments, but I'm sure you'll, you'll take more. Give us, um, give us a sketch of it all, Gord, please. Yeah, so uh, summer is here. You know, obviously, we've been having some uh, hot weather, and uh, that means uh, weekend camping trips, long weekends, mm-hmm. people going to the beach, um, you know, out on the patio barbecuing. So blood donation is not top of mind. Um, however, there's patients across the other country and here in Newfoundland who are fighting for their lives for the uh, vital blood donations of uh, blood and plasma products. And as you said, here in Newfoundland specifically, um, between now and uh, next week for Data Day, we have over 200 on-field appointments. And uh, between now and Labor Day, uh, there's actually 972 appointments uh, that need to be filled in order to meet sufficient inventory uh, levels uh, during the, uh, the rest of the summer. Is it, uh, you alluded to it, but I, blood donation is cyclical, is it? And is it, does it tend to be lower in the summer than as a result of the things you just uh, stated? Yes, it is. Uh, particularly, it's difficult to uh, maintain um, ideal blood and plasma uh, supplies in the summer months. And largely, it's due to people not including blood donation in their plans, their summer plans. And as well, um, appointment cancellations are high due to uh, donors uh, traveling and and changing their plans and their um, regular routines and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, the need is there. We need all blood types every single day of the year, but especially around long weekends and during the summer, uh, it is a little bit more challenging for uh, Canadian blood services. 
two two questions for you. Uh, I am a person who's never been a fan of needles. I am not alone in that fear, Gord. Uh, but I have lots of friends who have overcome that fear and, and donate blood and are making a difference. And I saw that great story. Was it PEI recently? The gentleman who made over 100 blood donations and they had a big party for him and he was in his 90s or something. So to people like me and others who are saying, yeah, I hear what Gord's saying. It's an important cause, but it's not really my thing for whatever reason. Build comfort for us, Gord. Tell us how yeah, we I, can overcome that uh, angst or consternation that we have. And I always uh, say to people, you know, think about those patients in the hospital. Think about those uh, children at the Janeway, uh, you know, who require... Um, you know, needles, you know, on an ongoing basis. And a leukemia patient at the Janeway may require up to eight donors or eight units oh a week goodness. for every single week that they're receiving their uh, treatments for uh, leukemia. And their treatments, you know, may last up to 36 months. And, wow. you know, it's donating blood is not like, um, you know, having uh, blood work done going uh, for a, a blood test. It's, uh, you know, it should be uh, painless. Uh, the worst part is, is looking actually, at it go out uh, of your arm. <laughs> uh, the worst part is actually the discomfort is yeah. when we um, you poke your finger, the tip of your finger, just to check your hemoglobin levels. And donors okay. will tell us time and time again that that's the worst part of, okay. uh, you know, the donation process. All right. So say you've convinced me and I'm listening uh, now, or uh, if I weren't talking with you, how do I go about making an appointment? So appointments are required. And with all the on-field appointments between now and Labor Day, we have many same-day appointments available. And uh, we just ask people to go to blood.ca. They can download the Give Blood app, or they can call one triple eight to donate. That's one eight 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 two three six six two eight three. And one of the other things, there's a lot of people out there who thinks they may not be eligible um, to give when, in fact, uh, you know, they may be. One in two Canadians are eligible but less than one in 81 actually do give. So um, we ask that if, you know, you were told that you weren't eligible a few years ago, things may have changed because we're constantly making changes to eligibility criteria. I ask that, you know, they go to blood.ca or download the Give Blood app, and there's an eligibility quiz there that they can actually take uh, to see if they would be eligible to give. All right. Well, good luck to you, Gord. Important work that you're doing there. And uh, people of our province are pretty damn good at stepping up when asked. So update us later on how it all goes. And if we, uh, we can be of service, we certainly will. Thank you for making the time today. Perfect. Thanks so much, Tim. Really appreciate it. All right. That was Gord Skiffington from Blood, Canada Blood Services, Newfoundland and Labrador. Now, I always like talking to this guy. Uh, and I'd love to hear his take on on these uh, UAPs. Uh, Charlie, are you there? Yes. Good morning, Tim. How uh, how are you? Have you been paying attention to this until Adam raised it with me earlier? As I said, I had some peripheral awareness of it, but I've been in the tsunami of shuffle, so had not paid too much attention to it. Well, before I get to it, I want to make a quick comment on the weather. <laughs> oh, you're going to rub it in too, are you, buddy? Thank you. Oh, no, that's okay. People call summer heat 
sunny summer summer days or warm days, great weather. I'd like to know what's great weather when you can't get outdoors after nine o'clock in the morning and uh, you got to wait till after uh, after tea in the, in the evening. How can that be great weather? Right. <laughs> good, good point. <laughs> well, anyway, back back to uh, the, the person you had on earlier was that was my lead in there. The three military guys they had in Congress yep. there, right? You ask if I was interested. Uh, you probably don't remember, but I had a sighting, a really d- a good daytime sighting back in the 1980s. Oh, did you? Okay. Yes, uh, uh, very, very dramatic. And uh, since that, I've done numerous uh, books, uh, you, research coming out of uh, investigating, whatever you want to call it, coming coming out of my yin yang. But anyway, uh, I've got a guy, uh, Herman Oberth. Okay. Professor Erman Oberth, I'd like to just quote from a press conference he gave in 1954. He was considered by some to be the father of the American rocket science in the new space age. He was asked a question about how our new technology was suddenly so advanced. This is what he said. Mm-hmm. We cannot take credit for our record advancement in scientific fields alone. We have been helped, he replied candidly. When asked by whom the repatriated ex Nazi replied, shocking his audience, the people of other worlds. Hmm. Oberth went on to speak publicly about flying saucers, saying they are real and from another solar system. He knowingly added that such vehicles were manned by intelligent observers who were members of a race that may have been investigating Earth for centuries. Last part of it. He also strikingly stated for the record that such alien spaceships were conceived and directed by intelligent beings of a very high order, and they are propelled by distorting the gravitational field, converting gravity into usable energy. Now, when he came out with that, uh, needless to say, his American brethren uh, were shocked. In fact, he lost uh, a lot of his good reputation because of that statement, because he wasn't supposed to say that, because they have been keeping me on the wraps. Uh, do you remember Paul Hellyer? Yes, of course. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you, yeah the, Paul uh, Character. Yeah, Paul Hellyer has, has come out. He's on YouTube. Anybody wants to, to look at it. He talked about uh, President Eisenhower. This is what he said, uh, actually met with, because uh, they were conducting a lot of nuclear tests at the time out in the uh, Pacific, and uh, he claimed uh, that he had evidence, and he was talking with people in the highest circles, as you know, in government, that President Eisenhower actually met with a group, uh, I think it was Wright Air Force Base or Patterson, on the tarmac with, 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 with a group of these beings. But I won't, I won't go into that because it sounds too far. Really? Out. I did not know that. Yeah, that's uh, okay. Yeah. I'll have looked that up. Yeah. Colonel Philip Corso, I remember his book. He talked about the reverse engineering they had from a, a, a recovered uh, uh, alien craft. I looked into Roswell so often I got tired yeah. of it. Roswell happened. You had, a, you had a soldier by the name of uh, Jesse Marcel. Him and his buddy went out to investigate when it happened. And uh, they saw the debris along with the farmer and other people, several people. Came back, the story came out the next day about the crash. And within a day, they had called in a special unit to clean up, and they warned everybody to be quiet. Uh, 
you don't call, the, the, the story, the second story became it was a weather balloon. Well, you don't call in a special unit and tell everybody to be quiet because a weather balloon comes down, right? But anybody who wants to look at Roswell, uh, uh, that's, that's a fascinating story. And I'll say it again, there is no doubt Roswell happened. I guess my last comment, when science types come on and try to debunk because they can't put them in a lab and can't do anything about this anymore than they can psychic phenomena, they come on and try to debunk this because they don't believe it's possible. They're saying that President Carter is a liar, Charlie is a liar, uh, uh, Obama is a liar, all the pilots and so on, everybody are, 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 are liars, as I said, several presidents before uh, Truman. And uh, so they're trying to deny what literally hundreds of thousands, probably millions of witnesses have seen. And they're trying to deny that governments across uh, the globe, especially France and, and England, other governments and the Soviet Union, have been studying this for decades. And uh, because they felt we weren't ready for this, they thought it was in our best interest not to tell the public about what they had found. It's as simple as that. But anyway, I, I, I don't know if you want to comment on any of this or not. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I guess I'm struck by the fact that people are probably listening this morning, listening to you, and you, uh, you know a lot about a lot of different things, and are probably still, I think Adam or Aaron, I forget the gentleman's name, you know, talked about UFO stigma. When people hear this, they just, they, they tune out, but they shouldn't, I guess, is where I am when I listen to you. Okay. I mean, Paul it's Hellier, you, you, you need factor, to... Right? Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, I don't want to understand it. It's too crazy. It, that, that's where where I go, but I, I'm going to have to dig into to more of it. i got to give you about 30 seconds, Charlie, because I'm late for news, or what else would you okay, like to my, add? My sighting, I'll end with that beautiful day in the 80s. I forget it was the early 80s. We were out in the trailer in Bay Roberts overlooking the bay. Laying down reading, uh, yeah. the, the, the sunny day, and, and the trailer actually uh, lit up. You could see the difference in light. Now, no, no car is going to do that, but I thought it was a car passing along with its lights on. I got up and, and looked, and out over the bay, hanging, I don't know, probably a kilometer or so above the bay. It's hard, hard to uh, uh, try to estimate that. It's this great ball of, 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 of light or, or globe or whatever you want to call it, right? It's just hanging there. Suddenly, within, I'd say, three or four seconds of uh, looking at it, it just takes off in the bay at warp speed. That was a daylight sighting. I noticed on VOC in the next day, I don't know if it was related or not, they were talking about the sightings on, on, the, on the east coast of, 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 of North America, which may have been a completely different thing. But anyway, that happened. I wasn't hallucinating. I wasn't taking drugs. I wasn't even drinking that day. And uh, since that, uh, I knew that uh, whatever it was, no sound or anything, I knew it wasn't man-made. I knew it had to be something else. And since that... When you, when you see something like that, Tim, you either just dismiss it from your mind as being crazy and don't speak about it, which I didn't do, and I was called Crazy Charlie as a result, or you, uh, you dig into it and see what's going on. And I realized then that uh, this is a pretty common thing. Anyway, I'll end off on the, at that. All right. Well, you, you, you guys had me wanting to read a little bit more about UAP, so I will do that tonight, add it to the things I need to be prepared on. Good to talk to you, Charlie. Thank you. Okay, Tim. All the best. All right, we're a little late for it, but you're still going to get it. Here's the VOCM News, back with you shortly. 
Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to Open Line, uh, the Women's World Cup of Soccer. I don't know about you, but it has got me captivated. It is fantastic. There are lots of wonderful role models to cheer for. That Canada-Ireland game was a thriller. So who better than to talk to a Newfoundlander, professional female soccer player, Holly O'Neill, who plays professionally in Iceland. Holly, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, I, I tell you, I, I first of all, I'm sure you watched the Canada-Ireland game. Uh, tri- credit to the Irish. I have never seen in any soccer game the uh, a goal like that first corner kick by the Irish. How, were you watching the game? And if you were, how did you feel when you saw that? Uh, I was. And you know what makes it like, that much funnier is I was watching it with my teammate from Ireland. <laughs> oh, no way, really? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, it was an unbelievable goal. So, kudos to uh, Katie McCabe. Um, yeah, it was just one of those ones where you kind of got to take it on the chin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just felt for our goalie who was so world-class. And Anyway, they regrouped and they won. I, I was saying earlier, you probably didn't hear, I learned that one of my cousins is dating O'Sullivan, the Irish uh, Irish midfielder who had not a bad game for them either. Anyway, all of that <laughs> aside, as a, I mean, you're a Newfoundlander, you're a professional soccer player. What does this World Cup mean to you for for your sport and for encouraging um, a participation in the sport. Tell us about how you feel. Um, I mean, obviously it's exciting and Canada's always done super well on the world stage. So I just think, um, especially now where there's talks about the new Canadian Pro League, mm-hmm. if like, the women's team can do really well at the World Cup I think that it's just going to bode well for that as well which is good and I just think overall it'd be super motivating for the rest of the female players within Canada um, especially when you see players like um, Olivia Smith who I played against last season she moved from League One and she's now with the women's team at the World Cup now she's not playing but she's also mm-hmm. like 21 so maybe she'll get a chance there but regardless we'll see her later the great discussion always about role models in sport. And look, there's none better in any sport in Canada than, than Christine Sinclair. Uh, you're 24, according to what, it, what I've read. Was she a role model for you when you were growing up? Or had you had enough exposure to female soccer to even know who she was? Oh, no. She was definitely a role model for me, especially given we play the same position. Okay. Um, it was super exciting, actually, when she came to Newfoundland a couple years back. I'd say it was probably 10 years ago now. But <laughs> I had my photo with her there, and that was really exciting. So I guess it just goes to show that even, I don't want to say back then because I'm not old, but even then um, they were good role models. I just feel like now they have even more of the spotlight, which is good. 
So uh, on that spotlight, one of the, the big arguments against prof- professional female sport and female sport in general is it just doesn't attract audiences. Now, I think that's being thankfully undermined in different places. Um, but how do you push back on people who say, oh, I don't want to watch women's soccer. It's not as fast. It's not as good. Well, they haven't watched any if they're saying that. But how do you push back on people and, and then encourage them to watch um, it's definitely a tough one. I think there's a lot of, obviously, controversy surrounding it. And I think, you know, men's and women's is very different. It's almost like cats and dogs, as I do describe to some people, because I have had this argument before. Um, it's just two different, not sports you're watching, but, like, it's just completely different. And I think in terms of getting more viewership for women, I think it's it's already there or getting there um, and not just that but it really also comes down to women watching women mm-hmm. so I think that's like a big target that we need to hit is just getting more females supporting females uh, I couldn't agree more with you on that I just say just watch too I, I'm sure you've seen that French commercial which was brilliant uh, for the French women's team and for people who haven't seen it it was being pushed around last week and it's AI generated images which are supposed to be players like Mbappe and others in the French male team but in fact mm-hmm. it turns out to be the French female players and it, I, I thought it was brilliant marketing what was your take on it? Yeah, I did see that, and I, I also would agree. It, it kind of comes back to what you said before about people saying, "Oh, it's um, it's slower, etc." Um, I mean, obviously, you're not going to get the same speed in the female game, but I honestly do think you'll see the same intelligence, the same technical abilities, and uh, realistically, the speed I don't think is that far off. Um, and I'll also argue I think the females is more aggressive and. <laughs> watch. I don't know if you caught the... There was uh, some aggression in that game yesterday. Yeah, yeah, there... Yeah, uh, yeah, even in the Canadian one, crazy... So, so tell me, um, as somebody who's on a professional sport journey, and again, pay equity is a big thing, and not just with our national team, but in professional sports, women's professional sports with probably tennis and golf aside, doesn't pay near the dollars that uh, you get in male sports. I mean, I hope, uh, Holly, you get Mbappe-like money and they offer you $300 million <laughs> to go to Saudi Arabia. I hope we will see a time when that happens. Do you... Yeah. You know, how much of a concern is that for you as you're on a professional journey right now? How how long could, can you commit to it from a financial perspective? Um, again, I think it's one of those things where, like, it is getting better. And, I mean, you can see with, like, the U.S. national yeah. team did a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's, you know, a lot of talk surrounding it and there's a lot of people kind of taking action i don't know if it'll ever get to where the men is at but i mean i can't even speak personally for playing in like the nordic countries they're really pushing to get there i think some other countries that you know it might take a while but i think at least the nordic countries are on the right track and like i said with the u.s women's team and what they did i think that was pretty good so maybe one day we'll see it get there but i don't think it's too bad now 
No, it's getting better. It's getting better. But, uh, you know, you look at the Mbappe, Messi, like money and the money in Europe and, and particularly the money the Saudis are playing, paying. It's crazy, crazy. So yeah. there's all other, all, <laughs> all other manner of reasons for that, as you and I know. Two last quick questions before I let you go. Uh, will we see Holly O'Neill in a Canada uniform sometime? Uh, I hope so. I mean, it's it's um, the top of my list um, for sure in terms of what I want to achieve and uh, the goals I have. I think right now I'm on the right track. Uh, at least I hope I am. So, yeah, hopefully. Well, we will be cheering for you. And uh, the last question is, we've got that big game coming up uh, Monday morning, Canada versus Oz, two of uh, two of the top teams in that group. Um, what do Canada need to do to win? Because their performance, I think it's fair. They haven't been consistent yet in their performance. They haven't got to a place where I think they're happy, which is not unusual in a tournament. But what does Canada need to do on Monday to beat Australia? Um, honestly, I think this is obviously going to be one of their tougher games, so I'm kind of glad that it is the last one because it seems like they almost need to settle into the tournament, which like it makes sense because people are getting out their nerves. Um, they're kind of getting a feel for, okay, this is what the level is going to be like. So I just think that if they show up like they did in the second half of the last game, uh, then it shouldn't be a problem. Just... Uh, yeah, just they just got to go out there and um, have the same intensity that they did. And I just think uh, they maybe were struggling a little bit to sync up and connect when it came to that final third. But other than that, in terms of their movement um, out of the back line, I, I think they've been doing fine. So if they can piece together that final third, I think we'll be, we'll be happy. We'll be relax hopefully on Monday. <laughs> well, it's really interesting just on your analysis, right? It, it The fact that there is more criticism or observation of their play, I think it's actually a good thing because to me that says people are paying attention and they're caring and they're investing and that can only be good for for the team and, and for the sport. Now, you don't want to create an atmosphere like the Toronto Maple Leafs or Montreal Canadiens have, but the fact that you have so many people weighing in and paying attention has to be good. Anyway, we'll leave it there, Holly. Good luck with the pro career and you go snatch that Canada jersey. We know you can't. Okay, thank you so much. All right, great to talk to you. That was Holly O'Neill, a Newfoundlander, a professional soccer player in uh, Iceland. When we come back, uh, we're going to have Cliff Small, the uh, MP, uh, who is going to respond to the Prime Minister, who's visiting his riding today. Back with Cliff Small after this uh, break. So we started our morning in the riding of Bay's Central Notre Dame, Costa Bay's Central Notre Dame, which is the riding of Cliff Small. The Prime Minister is there today making an announcement. And now we've got Cliff Small himself uh, to give us his perspective on uh, the visitor in his riding, what he thinks he's doing there, and uh, counter some of the, uh, the points the Prime Minister made. Cliff, how are you today? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? It's good to hear your voice. Oh, I'm all right, boy. I got the. I'm still in Ottawa today, and I got the Newfoundland weather, and you guys got the sun. So I'm jealous about all of that. So listen, um, in some ways, I guess you should be flattered, Cliff. Uh, Prime Minister doesn't go into everyone's riding. You're the only uh, conservative who's won in Newfoundland and Labrador, and ha holds a riding there. What's your take on why the Prime Minister is in your riding today? Well, Tim, of course, uh, he's in this riding 
Uh, he'd dearly love to have it back. Uh, I'm, I'm expecting that he's going to encounter uh, some opinions uh, that may not jive with his own from uh, constituents uh, that I talk to every day, like today here in, in Wild Cove in, in Twillingate, on Twillingate Island, uh, where, where we have uh, seniors that aren't going to be able to afford to heat their home this winter. They can't afford the $25,000 to retrofit and even uh, upgrade their electrical service to be able to put in a heat pump. It's, uh, it's, it's getting a little out of hand. They're concerned. They've been hearing that, in fact, the PBO can't even quantify what the clean fuel standard is going to mean in terms yeah. of how much extra they're going to pay. Right early on, uh, the, the estimate was about 17 cents a liter plus HSD. What I'm hearing now that it could be way, way higher than that. In fact, they can't even quantify it. So, uh, you know, we've been saying that that uh, carbon tax one and two is going to cost uh, an extra 61 cents a liter on gasoline, maybe even far higher than that. Now, given the fact that the PBO can't quantify what the clean uh, fuel standard carbon tax number two is going to mean to him. Yeah, what's interesting to me is, I, and look, credit to you, I think you've been on this for a while, the clean fuel charge in particular, and the PBO, as you're alluding to, says it's going to cost three times what it costs in Newfoundland and Labrador and Atlantic Canada, what it costs in Ontario, uh, but unlike the carbon price or the carbon tax, pick whatever you want to call it, the government will say, well, we redistribute money. There's none of that, right, with this. This is a separate application uh, in terms of policy, but still, to use your example, causes pain for people in Wild Cove and everywhere else uh, who don't have alternatives to pursue. Exactly, and, and even for the fishing industry, for fish harvesters, for processors, for trucking companies, it's draining, it's draining the, uh, the economic value uh, out of that industry for mining, for forestry, for agriculture, for tourism here on Twillingate Island. What's that going to mean on Fogel Island uh, and, and all throughout the riding? And, and, and for in fact, as far away as Harbor Breton, I'd have to take a trip to Grand Falls, Windsor, or Gander for a, a, a medical appointment. One thing they know is this is really going to hurt them. Uh, so uh, what, do you, what did you think of the cabinet shuffle there, uh, Tim? Well, wait, just before we get to that in a minute, I just want to stay on this because it's important. I, let's go to the data, some of the data we put out, which I think makes your point. I was trying to raise this with the, the prime minister, and look, a poll's a poll. Um, ours yesterday is interesting in as much as it shows two things. that If I were uh, advising the government, and I'm not, and I'm not advising Pierre Polyev, we all know that, Cliff, um, that... That, I had to get that one, and I know you'd like that one. Uh, the, the, what would concern me is the number that says 72% of Canadians are concerned about um, the cost of living, which is the point you make. And in, in Atlantic Canada, and we had a bigger sample size there, where the Liberals have done well. I mean, you know, you're the, the blue dot in a sea of red in Newfoundland and Labrador, that you guys and the Liberals are tied. I mean, is it really as simply about just the Liberal government, for whatever reason, not being able to connect with people on how they're feeling about the pains their pocketbooks are encountering? I'll tell you one thing I've heard, and I've, uh, you know what? I think you're going to be a Polyev conservative at the end of the day. <laughs> I can feel it. 
Uh, okay, you buddy, you keep, you keep working yeah. on me. There's some distance. Yeah, you're gonna be you're gonna be at the mercy seat, I'll yet, be, buddy. I'll be uh, I'll, I'll be a Cliff what. Small, Tory. How's that? A Cliff Small, Tory. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'm I've been hearing that liberals are willing to sacrifice seats in Atlantic Canada to hang on to their base in the cities, okay. and it's kind of it's kind of evident, and. Um, I hope that the Prime Minister comes here today and reverses the decision that was made inside the PMO to keep the mackerel fishery shut down against a recommendation that I, myself, and uh, our colleagues on the Fisheries Committee worked very hard to get into the letter to the minister to match the Americans' quota while they continue to fish and for the fishing industry to be able to have a bait fishery for mackerel. And I was talking to, and you know what? I'm upset enough now that I'm willing to go out there that I was told by officials in the minister's office that the decision to keep the mackerel fishery shut down was made inside the PMO. Hmm. It wasn't made by the minister. So as this new minister comes in, is she going to be the minister of fisheries? Or is she going to be the face of the department? And is the prime minister going to continue to run the fishery here? You know, so, so on that, we, so just on Go the ahead. new minister, I want to do get your reaction on that. But I, look, FFAW seems giving her the benefit of the doubt. Say she comes from the Maggie's. She understands um, the fishing industry, given her experience. Also, there's some shared uh, shared resource that she would have with Newfoundland and Labrador fishers. What's your initial reaction to that appointment? Uh, my, okay, the positive part of that is she does have the Magdalene Islands in her riding. When I uh, tabled my bill, when we got to second reading on my bill, C-251, um, mm-hmm. an act to create a framework for the management of the pinnipeds, which we all know, well, some people may not know, that includes seals. And she voted against it. Uh, basically, all the liberals voted against it except two uh, and neither of them were from Atlantic Canada, and in fact, Newfoundland, Labrador, of course. So, uh, but I'll tell you who did vote for my bill. It was all the members of the Bloc Québécois. Hmm. They voted to support my bill. Absolutely. But our our provincial MP, our provincial MPs here, voted against it. Yvonne Jones abstained conveniently. God love her heart. Uh, so. But she understands the necessity uh, to ha- of, a, a, of a good seal harvest and what that would mean to bring back, in terms of bringing back biodiversity uh, to our ecosystem, ocean ecosystem and to uh, allow the fishery to grow back to what it should be and be a strong contributor to the blue economy. Now... I'm going I got to give you two minutes. Can, or, can I, can, I don't want to cut you off too much, no. but I do want you to get to no. respond to one thing that the PM said, and, and then I'll give you an extra minute or so, and then we we got to go to a break. But so the, the PM's argument and is that, uh, and, and you've heard it before, uh, conservatives don't care about climate change. Uh, they're pushing back on all these policies because they're not true. They, they, they don't truly believe. They're not making it a priority, and because of this, you know the economic impacts later will be worse. I just want you to respond to that, to be fair to the the PM's argument, and to hear your perspective on that. 
we believe in climate change, but we care about people. And we can't continue to inflict suffering and hurt on our people who are way down with the cost of living, with the extra cost to heat their homes, to drive to a doctor's appointment. Um, and with the, the interest rates, it's, it's, life is unbearable for so many people. We care about the people that we sit in those green seats to represent. We, in Canada, we've got great carbon sinks. We're, we're, we take in eight times more CO2 than we produce. The Prime Minister should be forcing countries like China, sorry, he can't force them, but the work should be on educating and getting those countries, China, India, and and all of those big polluters to to rein in what they're uh, producing. And in fact, the coal is now at the highest price that it's ever been. Mm. And the demand is so high, it's still growing. So to come to the Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and saddle them down with this, when we're taking uh, so much of the world's carbon out of the atmosphere here in Canada to come and punish our own people, we believe in the people of Canada. We know the climate's changing. It's getting warmer. You, you can't deny it. The permafrost yeah, is melting. The cat's out of the bag. So, Okay. I, we uh, got one minute just to wrap it all up because i got to get to news. So I'll give you a minute. What else would you like to add today? Technology, not taxes. That's going to be the conservative way to reduce our emissions, to do our little part. We're going to do it, and that's the way we're going to do it. Uh, yeah, so back to the fishery. i got to come back to it one more time. Yep. There hasn't been science, there hasn't been trawl surveys done since 2019. The codfish is numerous. They can't keep it out of their crab pots offshore in 3K. Uh, I've I fished crab for 15 years. I saw two codfish in my entire fishing career in crab pots. Guys are getting as much as a thousand pounds a day of bycatch, and all large spawny fish. The spawning biomass is back. The new minister needs to get and the science get there, get in there, get it done, and prove that it's back. Right now, we should be at 50,000 tons based on the, the reports that I'm hearing of the codfish. It's unbelievable. And we need to start getting that fishery back up and running gradually. We're not going to be able to fish it at the, the rate that we used to. We can't exploit it that way because there's so much predation from seals, and it's taken 30, over 30 years to get back to where it is. But we can we can up that quota and help out the coastal communities and the and those who rely on the fishing industry, and not just in the coastal communities. You go in Gander and Grand Falls, Windsor, and you talk to anyone that runs a business there, what it's meaning to them this year with the downturn in the crab fishery. Yeah. And okay. these all and these and these businesses all support those those towns. Mm-hmm. So people might say, Oh, Cliff Small is all about the fishery. Well the fishery is all about everything in Newfoundland and Labrador and I'm very proud and I'm gonna stand up strong for it. Yeah, it's still billions of dollars in, in the economy which we uh, cannot forget. All right, I gotta leave it there, Cliff. Thanks for making the time today. Appreciate it. I love you, buddy. Take care. Take care. All right. I was uh, Member of Parliament Cliff Small. He's getting a visit from the Prime Minister today, and he's on the other side of the fence. We'll see how that all plays out. Time for a break here. I'm back with more of your calls after that. 
Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. All right, welcome back. we got about 19 minutes to go. I'm going to try and get in three or four calls here. First up is Albert, who is not very happy with the provincial government. Albert, tell us what's got you irritated. How you doing, Tim? I'm good. How are you, Albert? Good, good. good. Welcome back to civilization. <laughs> well, I, 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 don't, I don't know if we're civilized, but I'm in something. Uh, well, we've been very civilized this morning. Tell us what's yeah. going on. Pauline on this morning, we're talking about um, the highways, okay? Yeah. Transportation? Mm-hmm. You know, they haven't got enough vehicles on that. In my opinion... Yes, you had Pauline was talking about that, yes. Yeah. In my opinion, okay, is that yeah. uh, we get too many vehicles. I worked with highways for 32 years, and it's in, it's in worse business than I've ever been. So, I mean... Uh, don't have any vehicles because they don't they get nobody on. Everybody's laid off. So, so the, the, the issue isn't the, the issue isn't the fleet; it's the labor force, is it? Not being well, enough people. A bit of everything. I mean, yeah. you, you can't have drive vehicles. You got no no employees. Can you? Yeah. No, <laughs> that's a pretty common sense proposition. Yeah, you're I right. Wonder, I wonder if Paul understand that. You got them all. Laid, they're all laid out. I've been with highways for 32 years in management. Okay. okay, so I know a little, a little bit, but I'm talking about they're, right now. They're they're, they're down, down, they're shut down, and that's why they want to be. I drive around my area, and I, I don't see a highway vehicle around the roads. Nothing. Is this? I, I asked Paul this, and he admittedly he uh, he wasn't certain one way or the other. But is this a deliberate uh, cost savings measure then, in your view, both from a labor perspective and a capital equipment perspective? Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah, cutbacks. And I, I, I don't understand how the highways are running because, I mean, there's nothing on the go. They're not doing nothing. Right? Yeah, no. Well, you guys are telling me that. I don't know for sure, but uh, why would I disc- discount what you're saying? So, I mean, I was here 32 years. I, 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 I witnessed yeah. that. Yeah. And uh, what I'm saying to you is that uh, I, I, don't know, I don't know if they're justified highways anymore. So what do you think should should happen here then? Like well, what, either what? They, they, like the old saying, either shit or get out of the pot. <laughs> now you can't be saying that word on the radio. Come on. Okay. Anyway, what I'm saying is that uh, there's something going on. Okay. okay. You you you're in St. John's for what? You're in St. John's right now. No, I'm in Ottawa. Now. I was in St. John's last week. I'm doing it remotely oh. today. But next time you come down, drive around the highway or around and see. Okay. <laughs> All right, we'll leave it there, Albert. I appreciate the call. Thank you. We'll dig into it. Yeah, and and the thing with the other one I want to mention about, about the healthcare, right? Yeah, go. You got two minutes. You got a minute because I got a, one other call I want to get in. But go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. What I'm saying to you is the healthcare. Tom Osmond, Tom, we're going to add ten more more uh, seats to the mid school. It don't make no difference. We've been the mid school went open since 1960. We had, when at that time we had doctors coming into our ears. There's nobody, no, no doctors now. What why? Yeah. And, and the lady that's here, you know, uh, Dorothy Keegan, I think, she's acting, right? she got no idea either. She's just, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Are we dealing with the, what's the problem and how do we deal with it? And uh, and we'll see how that all goes. All right, I got to leave it there, Albert. Thank you for your call. Thanks, Tim. 
Okay, have a good day. All right, we're going to go right now to, uh, sorry, Emily. Uh, Emily Wadden, who's the program manager with Safe Works Access Program. You heard on the news earlier, and I think uh, Emily was, was part of the conversation about the concerns expressed by the the RNC about uh, drugs in town and uh, them being laced with fentanyl, particularly cocaine, and how dangerous that can be. Emily, what what's happening and what should people be doing? Um, so, yeah, we're, we're seeing a lot of uh, drugs being mixed, unfortunately, and not just opioids with opioids, but, you know, opioids with stimulants, which kind of hits, um, I think, a broader group of individuals. Um, so we're suggesting, if at all possible, for folks to get a naloxone kit that can be obtained either through us, um, and we mail everywhere, both in town and across the province as well, or by calling 811 and getting it through the uh, respective health authorities. Any idea why this is happening now? It's, it, I, look, I've heard lots of reports, not seen any fresh data on it. Um, drug, uh, al- alcohol and substance abuse is much higher post-pandemic. People, want, you know, people who are in the business of providing illegal substances know that. They're bringing more on stream. They're trying to mass produce it. One assumes they take shortcuts. Any idea to the root here? Um, honestly, I'm, I'm not sure about the route exactly, but folks, I think it's also important to note that, you know, at least locally, folks aren't like mixing this in necessarily themselves. Yeah. Um, it's not, you know, a like, let's poison these drugs type of thing just because, um, but it's likely every time it changes hands, kind of coming across the mainland. Um, unfortunately, you know, some of those folks might have some extra, you know, fentanyl or something of the like kicking around that they choose to bulk it out with. Um, and, you know, the pandemic was rough, right? It was rough mm-hmm. on a lot of people, lots of isolation, disconnection. And, you know, we, we saw very high um, both relapse rates and folks starting to use for the first time. And, you know, so it's led us here. I, I got to be honest, I'm partially surprised it took kind of this long for us to be in this situation in all honesty because as we know across the rest of Canada you know things have been very rough um, for a long time deaths have skyrocketed record-breaking every single month and it's unfortunate that now we're um, you know part of that conversation in that group. Is there any other quick guidance you can provide to people on why I mean obviously if you don't have to take the substance you shouldn't take the substance but is there other guidance you can provide for people who are listening who perhaps through no fault of their own have addictions challenges and the like and they can call for kits but what else can be done so i mean yeah people are going to use drugs regardless so what can we do within that um and you know of course yeah there is getting a naloxone kit but there's also we provide uh testing strips both for benzodiazepines and fentanyl so that folks can actually test their drugs before they're taken um just to kind of get an idea of what's in them i mean it's not foolproof but it's something and also using alone is surely i think one of the major reasons that folks end up dying so you know if you're not able to be physically with you know a friend or family member in the moment calling somebody and having them on the line is very helpful and there are also um you know atlantic 
Canadian Services as well as Canadian Services, um, NORS, the National Overdose Response System being one of them. And you can actually call them and they'll chat with you. They'll stay on the line with you as you use drugs okay. and there'll be a plan made previous to that. Like, you know, if I stop responding, who do you call? That type of thing, just to keep people safe. Because like I said, it's, it's going to happen anyways, but nobody deserves to die because they yeah. use drugs. No, uh, and that is a positive message on a tough subject that we will uh, end the conversation with. Thank you for making the time, Emily, and we'll try and continue to raise awareness over here and hopefully be able to save some lives. Uh, appreciate your work. Appreciate the time. Perfect. Thank you so much. Okay, that was uh, Emily Wadden. Time for our last break here. I believe we've got one more call coming up here on VOCM's Open Line. Hang on and stay with us for a big finish. Welcome back. Last few minutes of the program, and I wanted to talk to somebody uh, working in the uh, independent business sector. So we've got Duncan Robertson on the phone. Duncan is from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. He's a policy analyst. Duncan, how are you? Great. How are you? I, I am fine. What I wanted to talk to you about was something you guys are advocating for and uh, other businesses themselves are advocating for, which is um, an extension of the payment period for the Canadian Emergency Business Assistance Program, the SEBA program. Tell us what that, why and what that would mean if an extension were, were given, and if one doesn't, what are the perils of it? Absolutely. Well, it's, it's been a huge thing that we've been advocating for. It's going to have a, a, a sizable impact on small businesses. Um, just for your, your listeners, um, there's currently five months left for small business to repay um, their loan, or they will be missing out on a $20,000 uh, forgivable portion. Uh, they'll have to pay the entire amount at a 5% interest rate. So at, at current realities of, of the economy and small businesses facing pressures from increased wages, taxes, regulatory costs, fuel and insurance, this is going to have a huge impact, and we want to make sure that this uh, forgivable portion, that the deadline's extended um, to give uh, small businesses a bit more of a runway, preferably to 2025 or at least by 2024, and also to increase the forgivable portion by 50% to make sure that they have enough time to pay and that they have the, the amounts right now to pay because with many... Many things going on now in Newfoundland and across Canada. It's becoming harder and harder to, to pay back that debt. We're seeing carbon tax come to the province as well as the rest of Atlantic Canada. So it's it's a tough time for small businesses, and we just want the federal government to kind of take that into account and give give a, a larger runway for, for small businesses in, in Newfoundland and across Canada. Uh, how many recipients of the loan were there? Do you have any idea? Yes, well, uh, uh, quite a bit. I don't have the exact numbers for Newfoundland, okay. but we do know that nationally um, only 10% have repaid the SIBA loan, um, and almost three-quarters are saying that they need more time to repay. Um, at the same time, half are still below pre-pandemic revenues. It, it was something that was highly taken by small businesses during the pandemic, okay. as I'm sure you can appreciate, um, and they just need to, the government needs to you know, give them a bit of a break currently, and they give them enough time to pay that back so they're not forcing you know small businesses to to shut their doors because of this substantial kind of um debt that they've taken on were you surprised uh, yesterday with the federal cabinet shuffle that uh, the, the the government the federal government who uh, it is being argued and data is suggesting is not really connecting the way they would like with canadians on pocketbook issues and a lot of small business loans they go they go week to week to week and uh, the seba is, is an item that, that helped them so were you surprised that the, the, the government didn't say anything about this yesterday do you have any sense that the advocacy 
you're doing and, and others are doing may mean an announcement sooner rather than later because it could impact their political fortunes, which would be beneficial to your business owners if that were part of the consideration. Yeah, well, it was it was concerning not to hear anything about that at, at the current shuffle. Um, at the same time, we have upwards of 30,000 signatures from Canadian small businesses across Canada asking for SEBA to be extended. So it's something that we've been advocating on, and we've definitely been made, making this clear to government. Um, we've also signed on with a letter of around 250 business associations across Canada, representing 250,000 small businesses in total. Um, so that, that's been made very clear to, to Minister Freeland um, and to Mr. Ng. Um, but at the same time, it is good to see a minister solely responsible for small businesses to yeah. hopefully signal that that the government is taking a, a, that into account and kind of putting a, a, a spotlight on small businesses. But at the same time, we want to make sure that this actually comes with some some policy or some support for small businesses. And it's not just a title, but it's, it's something that the government can really get behind and, and show some support for small businesses. Last question for you as we're getting up against the clock here, and it is, what what would be the negative impact of not doing this? In other words, uh, the the um, uh, other than the, the one on businesses, which means some might be in greater financial peril or it may limit their own plans, but, you know, is, is this going to hurt somehow, hurt the broader federal treasury if the payment is delayed for another year or so? Will there be program limitations because this money doesn't flow back? What do you know about that? Well, that, that would be something for the, the Treasury Board to answer. Um, but at the same time, I mean, 90% have not paid that back. So it could mean you know, your, your local your local mom-and-pop shop, your coffee shop will have to close their doors because it is a significant financial impact. So if, if, if the federal government wants to, you know, it may have some financial impact on the Treasury Board, but at the same time, it's local Canadian small businesses who provide good-paying jobs for, for Canadians and Newfoundland Labradorians, and it's definitely something that they're going to have to take into account and weigh the cost and benefit from that. But we would assume that the federal government would want to provide support to small business, keep them you know, open and going and supporting our communities um, rather than, you know, it, it may cause some, some pocketbook issues for the federal government, but at the same time, we want to make sure that what makes Canada Canada is our small businesses and what they do for our communities. We want to make sure that they're, they're open and continuing to, to do what they do best. And uh, it's something that they're going to have to consider for sure. All right, Duncan. Well, we'll be watching this. I, I myself was a bit surprised they didn't do something about it yesterday. It's a, it's an, an easy win that will please a lot of people. Maybe they will as the summer moves forward. Duncan Robertson, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Uh, great to have you on this morning. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Bye. All right. Now, you know, I haven't even mentioned him all morning. I'm such a bad, bad friend and partner in crime here. My buddy Dave Williams has just navigated this ship. We haven't crashed, I don't think. He'll tell us uh, all morning with, you know, calls from prime ministers, calls about aliens. Others can make the joke and find humor and all of that. Uh, calls from all of you. Lost phones. Dave always does an awesome job, and I'm so lucky he is here with me. He uh, He's a co-pilot with Patty. So thank you to Dave. And speaking of Dave, he gave me this fun fact that has nothing to do with aliens because Dave really likes that conversation. You judge Dave as you see fit. According to Dave, today in 1866, making it the 157th anniversary, the Great Easterner, Great Easterner, landed in heart's content with a cable strung all the way from Valencia Island 
Ireland ushering in a new era of long-distance communication. And I know that's benefited VOCM, though we communicate differently now because there's lots of you listening all across the country and around the world. And thank you for doing that. Thank you for being with us today. There's a replay of this program later this evening. I will be back tomorrow, Monday and Tuesday. Uh, Until tomorrow, though, I'm Tim Powers. This is VOCM's Open Line. Talk soon.